Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. fun today. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, well welcome. Uh, first admin thing, if you've got a phone, if you could uh, turn it off or turn it to uh, uh, vibrate just so we don't get an interruption in the middle. Um, the, the event today is the, uh, the U.S.-North Korea summit uh, canceled or postponed, so I guess we got it right. Um, although over the weekend, one of the panelists uh, contacted me and said, well, you know, now that, that Trump has officially said we're back on, um, you know, should we change the title? And it's like, well, it'll probably change two or three times, you know, before the, the event, you know, our event even. Um, but uh, actually, there's a, a bit of a story behind the event. I had, when I finally lined up the, the six panelists, the, the first three, and then we have a second panel focusing particularly on Japan, um, I, I hadn't gotten around to sending out the, the notification flyer so I came in one morning. I was like, "All right, I'm going to do nothing else this morning but get that flyer out and just to, you know, the summit. Uh, what's going to happen? What are the implications of the summit?" And I get interrupted by a phone call, and I was like, ah, you know, "I just want to get this flyer out." Um, and it's like, "Okay, CNN, yeah, okay, yeah, I can do an interview. Twenty minutes, sure. Okay, on what? What cancellation?" And I was like, "No." And then we we're, you know, all of us were running around that day doing interviews, and then that night I just thought, well. All right. Rather than being really behind the curve on a, uh, you know, a let's talk about the summit. Why don't we still have the event, but it'll be we'll change the title to what are the implications of a canceled summit? And then that way, instead of looking like I'm hopelessly behind and getting the event flyer out, I'm looking brilliant. And then I got six panelists for an event about the, the canceled summit. Well, and then as, as we were sort of editing the flyer, someone said, well, just in case it does come back, why don't we fudge on the title? And then that way, we're good either way. So that's a bit of a background of how we uh, we came to have this brilliantly prescient title on our, our flyer. Um, anyway, it's, it's a great pleasure to have uh, three uh, expert colleagues and friends uh, today to talk about uh, the U.S.-North Korea summit. Uh, and then we're going to follow with three other uh, expert uh, uh, analysts about uh, the Japan aspect. Um, to, to do a quick intro, and, and you recognize all the panelists because they're on TV so often, um, but uh, Duyon Kim is a visiting senior research fellow at the Korea Peninsula Future Forum, uh, which is a think tank in Seoul, and previously she was uh, an associate in the Nuclear Policy in Asia programs at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Um, uh, Dr. Lee Sung-yoon is the Ku Korea Foundation Professor in Korean Studies and Assistant Professor at the Fletcher School at, of Tufts University. Uh, and formerly, he was a research fellow with the National Asia Research Program. Uh, and Dr. Sumi Terry is now a senior fellow for Korea at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, 
Uh, and before that, she had a long career in the uh, intelligence community or with the U.S. government. She was the director for Korea, Japan, and Oceanic Affairs at the National Security Council. Uh, she was the deputy national intelligence officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council, and then she was an analyst on Korean issues at CIA. So uh, with that, I'm going to move chairs here. Uh, and I think, Yun, we're going to have you go first, and then we'll draw straws to see who, who the next panelist is. Uh, so each of them will, will sort of talk about their, their views of the upcoming summit, sort of do we have hope or concern, uh, as well as some recommendations for what we hope to see come out of the summit, because uh, really I think there's just a lot of confusion. And then we may do some cross-panel discussion, or I may ask some questions, uh, and then we'll throw it open to the audience. So, Yun, do you want to start? What? How many minutes? <laughs> Eight or so? or What do you want? Ten. Ten, okay. Wow. Thank you very much, Bruce, and thank you for this opportunity, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. The last time that a U.S. president geared up, prepared for a summit meeting with his North Korean counterpart, great dividends, great things accrued for North Korea. In 2000, Kim Jong-il came out of his antisocial hermetic carapace, his shell, and engaged the world vigorously by lining up the leaders of the world's biggest powers for a series of summit meetings. Kim Jong-un effected a very dramatic image makeover. He went from a reclusive, ruthless, funny-looking dictator dictator to a legitimate, reasonable global statesman with whom the world could do business. What kind of business? Nuclear negotiations. And Kim Jong-il also set a new standard for international shakedown, extortion. Let me try to explain. In May 2000, Kim Jong-il made his first foreign foray, his first foreign visit as the national leader. Where did he go? Beijing, obviously. Why? Because in about a fortnight, he had a very important summit coming up with South Korean President Kim Dae-jung. After having pocketed $500 million, that's half a billion dollars in cash, secretly wire transferred by the South Korean government to Kim Jong-il's secret personal accounts. Kim Jong-il then received President Vladimir Putin in Pyongyang on July 19th. It was the first ever visit to North Korea by the top leader of Russia or the former Soviet Union. Now, after having softened up China, South Korea, and Russia, then Kim turned his gaze on the United States and sent, for the first time ever in the history of North Korea, U.S.-North Korea relations, a special envoy to the White House. Vice Marshal Cho Myung-lok came to the White House on October 10th, met with President Clinton, and delivered a personal letter to Clinton from his boss, inviting Clinton to come to Pyongyang. Just 12 days later, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright was in Pyongyang, toasting Kim Jong-il, watching the spectacle mass games seated next to Kim Jong-il. Many people don't remember that Bill Clinton was very keen on making that historic trip as unprepared and rushed as he was. That temptation, that impulse is very strong today in the White House, in the Trump administration, 
I would say. And the only reason that that visit by Clinton never materialized was due to the uncertainty, the fiasco in the wake of the November 7th presidential election, the vote recount between Al Gore and George W. Bush. It was not until mid-December, December 13th, that Al Gore conceded defeat and simply time ran out on Clinton. But even in very early January, Clinton had not given up hope on a historic moment in Pyongyang. In recent days, President Trump has told Kim Yong-chol to take his time on denuclearization. There's a wonderful song by the South Korean all-girl group Red Velvet called Take It Slow, and it's a love song, and it's somewhat reminiscent of that ethos. Oh, take your time, no rush. President Trump also, President Trump, President Trump also said that he believes that North Korea can change, reform its economy under the stewardship of Kim Jong-un. History suggests otherwise. We see still, of course, a persisting tendency on the part of Americans to underestimate, patronize, condescend to the North Korean leaders. And the reasons are quite obvious because they are so weird. But North Korea has been weaponizing its own weirdness since the early 1970s under the stewardship of the founder, Kim Il-sung. In 1972, as the mood dramatically changed in the region, in the aftermath of the dramatic opening rapprochement between the U.S. and China, Kim Il-sung called on American reporters, journalists, to come and see him. So in May, a New York Times reporter, too, actually, Harrison Salisbury and John Lee, sat down with Kim Il-sung. The next month, Kim Il-sung gave an interview to Selig Harrison of the Washington Post. The next month in July, Kim Il-sung received a Harvard Law professor, Jerome Cohen, to all three parties, Kim Il-sung said that the U.S. troops should leave, yes, that they are a hindrance to genuine peace and unification by the Korean people themselves, Uri Minjokiri, which has a particular connotation in Korean, and that Japan was remilitarizing, set on making South Korea and North Korea an economic colony. Well, what does Kim Jong-un seek today after having effected what is, in my view, the most dramatic image makeover in history? In just a few months, Kim has gone from maniac, madman, this is what President Trump called Kim in the past, rocket man on a suicide mission to, in recent weeks, very honorable man, very smart and very gracious. That's what Trump has said of Kim. Pompeo has said of Kim that Kim was very well-prepared and personable. Back in the old days, Wendy Sherman said of Kim Jong-il, the father, that he was very smart, capable, supremely confident, and not a lunatic. Here's the point. Whenever Americans meet with the North Korean, and this is true of South Koreans and others, they come away impressed that the North Korean dictator is not only not a raving lunatic, but actually quite reasonable, kind of gracious, self-effacing, has a sense of humor. At times, they even say strangely pleasing things like, oh, we understand that the U.S. troops 
will have to leave, but they do play a stabilizing role, so we're not calling for their immediate withdrawal. And then Americans come away totally impressed, uniformly certain in the belief that they have made some kind of a deep emotional connection with a North Korean dictator by virtue of their own charisma, intelligence, and empathy that they can now trust him. What Kim Jong-un seeks is a protracted negotiation process, not a final agreement, not an agreed resolution, with which to buy time and money to perfect his own nuclear posture review. This is more Rambo 4 than the first installment, First Blood, which was kind of fresh, creative, and critically acclaimed. But by the time you've seen the fourth installment, you have a good idea how the movie's going to end and not end. Time after time, U.S. administrations fall for this trap. Why? Because North Korea is dangling before the international community the tantalizing prospect, possibility of denuclearization. So I believe it was President Trump's first mistake to impulsively agree to the proposition for a date by Kim back in March. And I think President Trump is rushing into this meeting. So in closing, how to salvage this very ominous situation? Well, The two men will meet in Singapore next week. At the meeting, I suggest, I would suggest President Trump needs to use the law, U.S. law, as a lever instead of political drama. What do I mean by that? As Mr. Klingner knows very well, and many of you, the terms for the gradual suspension and ultimate termination of U.S. sanctions against North Korea are codified into law, sections 401 and 402 of the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act of 2016. President Trump should tell Mr. Kim the truth. No one is above the law in the United States. My hands are tied. Until until you release political prisoners and until you take meaningful steps toward the denuclearization of not only your nuclear programs, but as it is stipulated in those sections, your chemical and biological weapons programs, there's not that much I can do. And I can't even suspend sanctions for one year until you stop counterfeiting our currency, engaging in proliferation and money laundering activities, and until you abide by the norms of international society, community, as an aid recipient nation, and allow for some basic transparent monitoring. So this is the truth. And furthermore, I call on you, Mr. Kim, to tear down the walls of your inhumane gulags. Until you do that, there's not much that I can do. Have a nice day. What Kim will call for is continual sequelization of this very basic two-act play, provocation and post-provocation peace ploy. He will call for follow-up summits because, as everyone knows, when you are courting somebody, you say you leave open the possibility, or even when you are being courted yourself, you leave open usually the possibility of another meeting, even if the first date doesn't work out very well. So Kim will say, come to Pyongyang. Kim will say even strange things like, I'm amenable to visiting you in the United States, maybe one year, maybe next year, 
speak at the UN General Assembly. And Mr. Trump will, President Trump will be engaged, interested by that possibility of continual dialogue. I believe this is a trap that's not going to work out. But if Mr. Trump, President Trump, can muster up the courage to tell Kim the truth, then that will be a summit, that will be political drama worth the visit. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Um, just a, a little more background on the, uh, the government meetings that w- were occurring uh, before it was decided Clinton would not go to um, Pyongyang. Um, I was attending the White House meetings as what, what's called the plus one. I was the, the uh, assistant or the, the bag holder or note holder uh, for the DCI and other uh, CIA officials for meetings at the White House talking about North Korea. Um, and after North Korea invited President Clinton to go uh, in 2000, some in the Clinton administration were saying, well, we should do this. The force of Bill's personality is so strong that if we just get him alone in a room with Kim Jong-il, we'll get everything we want. And we'll have saved nine months of working its way up through bureaucracies. Um, but the majority view was, in my view, sagely and wisely against that. Um, and it was predicated on success uh, but uh, in meetings in Kuala Lumpur between U.S. and North Korean officials where they were talking about a potential missile deal. And the North Koreans just kept saying, send your president to Pyongyang, he'll be happy. And the U.S. officials were saying, no, that's not how it works. We don't deploy a president to do a grip and grin photo. We don't deploy a president to negotiate. We deploy a president to sign an agreement where we know where every piece of punctuation is on that document. And the North Koreans weren't willing to be forthcoming in identifying the parameters of a deal. So the decision was to not send the president. So obviously it's quite different um, you know, now where the, we're going to have a top-down approach uh, where the, we have, Trump has seen himself as the negotiator in chief. So it's you know, quite a different situation from it was in, in 2000, but just a, a little bit more background. And, and I do think the, the uncertainty of the election kind of added you know, kind of a, a cloud over the decision. But the, the main uh, reason, I think, was because the North was refusing to be forthcoming on what the parameters of a missile deal could have been. So contrary to Secretary of State Albright's uh, autobiography, we were not this close to a missile agreement. Um, we were quite far apart. So I think, Duyan, you look like you have written down more on your paper than Sue, so maybe you go next. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce, uh, and Heritage Foundation for having us. And thank you, all of you who are here to have this conversation with us today. It's very timely events. It's always hard to go after Sungyu, and I feel like we can just call it a day and leave because we heard everything we needed to hear. Uh, to answer some of the questions that Bruce has laid out, uh, and I'll just try to be as brief as possible. The first is I think the summit will be successful because Trump will define it as a success. He will package it and sell it to his constituents as such. And it will not matter what we, the experts, or all of you in the audience, uh, how we view the actual text that comes out of this upcoming summit. Uh, there, it's pretty clear that there's a strong inclination by both leaders um, to have a good show, uh, a good PR opportunity. Uh, and this is where it gets risky and dangerous, and this is where my concern is, is that uh, the two leaders, especially Trump, uh, would want to declare peace because it sounds good and it's historic and it's unprecedented. Uh, but the problem is, even if you declare peace, it doesn't mean that peace is suddenly now on the Korean Peninsula and you are and you've declared peace with a nuclear armed North Korea. Also, um, we, you know, 
President Trump clearly is unconventional. And so we need to, the reality is we need to work with what we have uh, and try to make the best of what we have. And so because President Trump has already broken all conventional um, diplomatic orthodoxy, I don't think we can expect President Trump uh, to be or try to mold him into a typical lead negotiator to a typical international nuclear deal. I think that's just the reality. He's operating like a typical business tycoon who likes to meet his counterpart first, maybe play some golf, chit chat, and then move, you know, make a move for a deal sometime later. So we may see something, we may not. And I think that is true when President Trump says it like that. I, I, we just don't know yet. Uh, but um, because he is unconventional, I think we need to have some unconventional thinking and expectations for ourselves as well. Uh, and uh, I would offer and I would suggest that a good outcome, you know, even if this is going to be a show, which it, which it will be, uh, it's still a very rare and unique opportunity, a good opportunity for a sitting American president to directly clarify from a Kim leader himself uh, key concepts and fundamental concepts like what is denuclearization, what does Kim Jong-un want, uh, what exactly what types of uh, security guarantees does he want and what kind of format. So this is a good opportunity uh, that President Trump really needs to seize and take advantage of. So I think a good outcome uh, would be to, you know, I would love to see a very detailed nuclear deal with um, you know, key steps on verification and, and the barters and, you know, with the give and take. But uh, I would actually be happy with um, a joint vision statement, a very simple joint vision statement uh, that lays out key principles and end goals and the end state picture for the two sides uh, and leave and build in pathways for the experts, for negotiators to then go in and negotiate the details and implementation. Uh, and so a key, you know, a, a joint vision statement would include um, various components uh, that we've seen in the past and, and that we know are still issues today and clearly would have to be a commitment to denuclearization. It would have to include even a peace regime, include normalization of relations and other intertwined regional issues. And of course, chart it as such, you know, a peaceful resolution to all these issues. Uh, what President Trump should not do this time clearly is he should not aim for a peace treaty before denuclearization uh, for reasons I mentioned before. Um, but Kim Jong-un, his game plan will be to try to go the peace route. That's another way to get to uh, loosening sanctions and another route uh, to um, to, to rid U.S. forces from the peninsula and eventually break the U.S.-Korea alliance, South Korea alliance. So, you know, some, a lot of these negotiations, he doesn't have to go in head on and demand President Trump get rid of your troops. He can do it in a different way, and that way is the peace process. Uh, and of course, uh, President Trump should not trade away uh, U.S. forces for North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons. I'll just leave, lay those um, points out uh, for further discussion later and hand it over to Sumi. Thank you. Both of you guys did excellent job. Um, Professor Lee said that, um, you know, in, he recommends what President Trump should do. You know, no one is above the law, include human rights issues, shut down the good laws, counterfeiting, money laundering, all of this. I agree with him. The problem is we're dealing with President Trump. Um, no one is, I think he does believe somebody's above the law, but I won't go there. Um, so we have to deal with the reality of what we have. Um, and I don't know if President Trump is going to even, this is a person who didn't even raise human rights issue when Kim Young-chul came. 
to his right he didn't even raise it at all um so i'm i'm concerned that this is while it's an ideal goal it's not going to happen um it's interesting there's like a competing narrative that's out there on kim jong un um and you've been hearing about this right that you you might have heard that kim jong un is somehow different we've we've we heard this argument made um that somehow he's, you know, he's different from his father, he's different from his grandfather. A lot of things that Professor Lee talked about um, happened with Kim Jong-il. It's not really Kim Jong-un. I'm not saying I agree with this assessment. I'm just giving out this another narrative that's out there that um, Kim Jong-un is a young man, so he has to rule for the next 30 to 40 years. He doesn't want to rule a poor pariah backward state. Um, he cares about the world, what the world thinks of him. This is why when he came in, he, he, he has, you know, he, he wants to be a modern leader of a modern country that he actually wants to reform and do different things or have a fundamentally different relationship with the United States so that potentially there might be, he could actually put nuclear weapons on the table. Um, I would sort of get into why I also don't think that's necessarily, there's no evidence of that, but I'm just giving it out there what, what another narrative is out there on Kim Jong-un. Um, the problem is, um, for all the reasons that Duyong laid out, I'm concerned. Um, well, first of all, before even getting to this summit, I think North Korea already has gained. Kim Jong-un has been playing this really, really well. I have to give him credit. Um, after sort of almost seven years of just spending all that time just really accelerating towards trying to complete the nuclear program, he stops right before he has to, you know, he didn't go all the way, right? There's a, you know, there a couple of technical hurdles that he has to really cross to complete the program, but he quits right before and says he's completed the program. Then you've seen him engaging in the last few months all this summit trend diplomacy, and that has gotten him a lot. Um, he had a complete image makeover already. He got to uh, meet with President Xi Jinping twice, in multiple meetings twice uh, with President Moon, has hosted Russian foreign minister. Now he does appear like a, almost like a normal person of a normal country, right? And he's quite even popular in South Korea. I understand there's some groups out there that are saying, okay, well, he looks like a, a nice guy or a normal guy at least. So he had already this makeover. And I'm concerned that all this maximum pressure that we're talking about, it's already it's hard to achieve because we're already seeing, we're hearing reports about uh, even on China not really implementing sanctions. There's reports about, so, you know, seafood, North Korean seafood um, surfacing in the border areas in China. There's, there are different reports, the Japanese report about surface-to-surface -surface ship uh, transfer of fuel. I'm already concerned that there's relaxation or in terms of implementation of sanctions. And you're going to probably see that more from China, Russia, and even, even South Korea after a second meeting with President Moon, regardless of how this meeting goes with President Trump. There's going to be already some activities. I'm not saying South Korea is going to necessarily pursue activities that's going to be in violation of United Nations Security Council resolutions and sanctions, but there is going to be more activity and movement towards that front. So it's going to, Kim Jong-un has already gained. Um, and now, by President Trump just agreeing to sit down with him, we have given him legitimacy. I mean, so, it, so North Korea is actually much better off today than it was just even a few months ago, um, in November, December of last year. Now, in terms of what what to expect from the summit and what a successful outcome will look like, I agree with Duyong completely. I think what, whatever we see, we, they're both going to sort of spin it as a success. I don't see them 
the summit failing to the degree that there's going to be some drama and Kim Jong-un walking out or Trump walking out because both leaders are invested in, in spinning this summit as some sort of a success. Um, but President Trump has set himself a very high bar. Um, he called the Iran deal worse than ever, insane and embarrassment. Um, but when you look at the Iran deal, um, they agreed to give up some 97% of their nuclear material. Um, they already shut down century, uh, thousands of centrifuges. Uh, they accepted pretty strict limitations on their nuclear program for 10 to 15 years. So now having called that deal insane, that means the, whatever deal that we have with North Korea has to be you know, permanent, right? Um, Iran deal except in Iran accepted in sort of perpetuity intense, very intensive monitoring, um, including um, putting all IAEA cameras in all nuclear facilities, although not military installations. Um, and they had uh, allowed a sort of a right to challenge inspections um, for facilities that we suspect uh, are involved in covert activities. My point is, having called that deal insane, um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a, it could be argued that it's a flawed deal, um, that it's a very, very bad deal. Now, whatever deal that has to come up with North Korea has to be a lot better than that, right? So I do think if he doesn't come out, come away, come away with, uh, declaration from Kim Jong-un and absolutely what denuclearization means and none of this denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, if the regime security is guaranteed, if the U.S. policy, hostile policy ends, none of that, that North Korea is willing to unilaterally uh, abandon their nuclear weapons program. Um, that has to be permanent, no time limit, and it has to allow sort of unlimited short notice inspections, verif- strict verification regime. It has to also um, include chemical, biological weapons, as well as missiles, as well as conventional forces. If we don't have this kind of agreement, then it's not, you cannot call it a success. I mean, he, he, we talked about already how President Trump is going to call it a success. But then it's going to be, we, all the Korea watchers are going to be all over it and say that is not successful. Um, I think President Trump finally understands that this is not something that can be done, maybe, a first try. This is why you've been hearing his sort of, sort of backing away from the initial very high bar that he has set up for himself. Um, but so what I think could happen, uh, there are two scenarios that I, I mean, obviously we won't, I don't know, and nobody really knows. We'll find out very soon next week. Um, but two scenarios, I think one would be just what Dion is talking about, some sort of joint statement that's minimal, some sort of joint statement that talks about denuclearization in principle, that North Korea agrees to denuclearization in return for normaliz- normalization of relations or peace treaty or some some sort of statement like that and they let everybody else sort of work it out. But that's that's the extent of it. Or President Trump could get something out of North Korea. I think if North Korea is willing to potentially even give something to Trump, like that looks like a success, like looks like it's even more, maybe an, even an agreement to ship out intercontinental ballistic missiles, some aspects of the nuclear program, even fissile material, ship it out or or blow up something, blow up Yongbyon, some some visual, something that looks like that's kind of big and all the media is going to hyperventilate and say this is a very, very successful meeting, uh, successful summit. Now we're headed in the right direction. And then North Korea buys time. I absolutely agree with Professor Lee. That's their goal. It's protract, protracted process to buy time and money. But I think they might even put up something in the front to really convince the world that this time is different, that we're, they're doing something different. And then... Even President Trump says, oh, verification, this is going to be phased approach. Now, I, I realize this is going to take time. He even admitted that. So we're sort of allowing that. So, and then North Korea can then drag out 
drag the rest of the inspection, or everything else, drag it out and wait out the Trump administration. This administration leaves, and then they will see what 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 they will do. But there's no question in my mind that this is not we're not going to see, unfortunately, completely verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's program. Um, but we can't see what might look like sort of it's headed in that direction. And of course, we will never know whether it's some, something is successful or not successful until many years down the road. Um, but I think this is sort of the two scenarios. One is very minimal statement, which will still be spun as a success, or even something more if we can find it. And that's as much I think we can expect uh, from this meeting with Kim Jong-un. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, just to pick up on some of the points, yeah, the kind of this character, this you know, characterizing Kim Jong-un as, as sort of better than expected. And I think, we, you know, we saw that, I remember back in 1994 when uh, many, including some in the U.S. government, were describing Kim Jong-il as a bold economic reformer, and we are on the cusp of, bold, you know, massive economic reform in North Korea. Um, and I think, you know, as, as people have kind of, cari- you know, made a caricature of Kim Jong-il and then Kim Jong-un in North Korea, I think it sort of undermines uh, – you know, the assessment of it, you know, by making fun of all the missiles that fail, then when North Korea does emit, you know, has a missile uh, successful or a nuclear test, people are surprised, even though experts have been saying, look, they've been making progress along the way, they learn from their mistakes. Um, but then people sort of like, why wasn't I told North Korea is an actual military threat or an actual cyber threat? And he's like, well, we've been trying. Um, you know, also kind of the, you know, we've all seen the cartoons of Kim Jong-un is the funny little guy with the mushroom cloud-shaped hair or, you know, like as a baby playing with nuclear weapon toys. Um, so that then when someone meets with him and it, he doesn't, you know, drool or stumble, then they're amazed that uh, he's, you know, this, you know, inter- great international statement, statesman and we can do, you know, business with him. Um, and then you also see sort of even just this weekend when uh, a few defense officials were replaced in North Korea, there's sort of this automatic jumping into, ah, they're replacing the hardliners with the moderates, uh, and they must have been resisting Kim's bold, you know, new direction. You know, a moderate in North Korea is kind of a, a relative term. It's sort of, you know, replacing Sonny Corleone with Mike Corleone. Um, you know, he dresses better. He talks better. Um, but he's still from the same family. So it, it's, re- you know, really a relative term. And, and we really don't know why they were replaced. It could have been corruption charges or, or other things. Um, I think it's interesting when Duyon talked about kind of we're hoping for not a very detailed joint statement. Um, I mean, I've, one of my big criticisms of every previous North Korean agreement was it was so vague, it was so short, and I, I worked arms control at, at CIA, so I'm sort of used to and I like the, the very detailed um, arms control treaties with the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And, you know, we didn't like the Soviets. We didn't trust the Soviets. But by having a really detailed um, treaty, like a contract where everyone knew their responsibilities, and then you had very good verification. So if you have detailed text and good verification – you can have treaties with people you don't like or don't trust. And I was always critical of the, the previous agreements because they were, you know, sort of so vague so that we could have an agreement and everyone got to have their own interpretation. So what I was looking for is more a traditional, you know, I want a 100-page 
you know, arms control treaty coming out of this summit, <laughs> or at least a very detailed thing. But I kind of also see the, you know, Mr. President, put the, put the joint statement down, walk away, just leave it for the experts. Um, so that's that's another theory, which I hadn't um, yeah, thought I, of. If I can yeah. just jump in real quick. I, I'm with you on that. I would love to see a detailed um, um, agreement as well. Uh, but just if we put this into context, um, such an early summit, so soon, uh, with an American president who clearly does not seem to understand the complexities of these issues. Uh, so if you put it into that context, uh, I think – the best scenario, the safest scenario would be to have a simple statement so mm-hmm. that there are no mistakes or mm-hmm. um, slippages or slips of the tongue or or, or inadvertent um, giveaways that he didn't understand what the implications would be. Yeah, and, and I think another point uh, that, that Sue made was, you know, well, others have said, you know, it's going to be a success. And then I think you're going to have, you know, very loud responses. Uh, and I think it's going to be very partisan. The, the Trump supporters, I think, will say, look, I haven't read it, but I know it's, it's better than anything before because it was a strong president and he was not going to do something flawed like the, the Iran deal. I think the critics will sort of, you know, just criticize it because it's Trump and he wasn't well prepared. Uh, and then we'll say, well, it wasn't as good as the Iran deal that he walked away from. And so I think the, the, the lane in the road in between for analysts and experts is sort of ahead of time identify what we think should be in an agreement or, or um, you know, what the, our recommendations uh, and then assess the whatever comes out of it against sort of the merits or lack thereof of the agreement. Um, and then picking up on a point that Sue said is because Trump has been so critical not only of the, the Iran deal but all previous agreements um, – you know, I, I'd put it into kind of a math formula of TA is greater than 1 plus 8 plus 11 plus V. And what that means is a Trump agreement has to be better than the one Iran deal, the eight previous agreements we've had with North Korea, the 11 UN resolutions which have been imposing penalties on North Korea, and then the verification has to be equal to or greater than that in the START, CFE, INF, and, and BCW treaty. So, I mean, that's, I think, one of the, the ways we score it. And I, I take off points for contradictory policy statements. I take off points for, <laughs> uh, you know, falling off of what was a, you know, inalienable, of, you know, never going to give in on a policy point. Um, but I don't add or subtract points because it's a Republican administration. Um, you know, it's we should assess it the way we would Obama or Bush or anyone else's agreement. So I think, unfortunately, there's going to be a very partisan reaction to whatever comes out of it. And I think, you know, what we can hopefully do is sort of put some analysis to it. Um, and, and one last point is, you know, just as when we saw a lot of the experts who looked at the inter-Korean summit, the Panmunjom Declaration, and pointed out the similarities or even the plagiarism from previous agreements, which North Korea had repeatedly violated. I think it's also up to all of us to kind of point out where, especially if there are declarations that something is new and historic and never been done before, to kind of raise our hands and say, oh, <clears throat> paragraph two sounds very much like paragraph six of the agreed framework, uh, so that it's not breaking new ground. But um, why don't I uh, either, if, if we have any questions across the panel. Okay. May I just add, there will be mitigating factors. There will be factors that would give momentum to Kim Jong-un, even if nothing happens 
in the next six months in terms of actual denuclearization. What kinds of events or factors? Well, summit pageantries will go on. I would not be surprised if Kim Jong-un visits Vladimir Putin in Moscow uh, in the next few months. I would not be surprised if he holds a summit meeting with Prime Minister Abe. Of course, Japan is concerned that its issues, priority on the abductee issue is being sidelined. And let me remind you that Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, the last time he was president, he had that unpleasant personal experience of being marginalized all of a sudden by the United States in 06 and 07 when the U.S. went back to re-engaging North Korea in the wake of North Korea's major escalation, its first nuclear test on October 9th, 2006. Kim Jong-un as a reformer, of course, we've heard this even before he assumed power in the wake of his father's death in 2011. And the reasons put forward have always been solely that he was exposed to European cosmopolitanism as a boy, that he had lived in Switzerland, unlike his father, who had not studied abroad. For every Deng Xiaoping, there is a Pol Pot who lived in France for four years during his 20s, yet still managed to kill about a third of his own fellow countrymen. For every Deng Xiaoping, there is Basha al-Assad, who studied medicine, is an ophthalmologist in the UK, but has managed to kill hundreds of thousands of his own people. Um, Kim Jong-il first became a reformer when he visited China, Sichuan province, uh, in June 1983, and then through successive years, He's always been reborn as a new reformer. Uh, I remember in January 2001, so after that flurry of diplomatic activity in 2000, Kim Jong-il made another visit to China, to the southern provinces, to the southern province of Guangdong. He visited the city, Guangzhou, on January 13th, visited Vitron, some fancy um, flat-screen TV processor-making plant. And then the next day, he visited China Industrial Commercial Bank software producer uh, in Shenzhen. And then the next day, he visited Zhuhai, um, telecommunications companies in Zhuhai. And the media and everyone said, look, he is trying to follow in the footsteps of Deng Xiaoping, so-called Southern Tours, in January and February of 1992. Kim, that is the current one, will visit those regions, special economic zones, and that will lend further false credence to the wishful thinking that Kim Jong-un is a reformer. So please, let's be patient. Let's not rush to judgment and give him some time. That will be the faulty narrative that we will hear, I would say, in the next six months. You know, I, I wonder if one of the, the gestures that, that Kim might sort of present is turning over the keys to the Pueblo. Um, I think Dave Maxwell sort of thought of that before is, you know, presenting the, the, the American ship that North Korea captured in 1968 uh, and is kept as a museum and as a propaganda uh, tool. If they would just, you know, return, offer to return the Pueblo back to the U.S., that would be, you know, quite a, a big gesture. Um, why don't I throw the the questions open to the audience. Um, I'm not sure if we have a microphone going around, but uh, if not, if people could just sort of announce their name and their uh, affiliation, and then a question, sir, in the back. Uh, no mic. I, I guess no mic. Okay. Uh, Dave is 
question uh, about the, the next uh, six months to 12 months. What about just uh, this negotiation as a way of not necessarily just oh. dragging out the process, but um, stopping further uh, nuclear tests and missile tests by North Korea? Right. Isn't that an advantage for us, for Japan, for South Korea? Uh, even though you know we would require these shows, I mean, uh, more expenditure of time by Mr. Trump, he doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Nobody in Europe wants them, but Japan in or Mexico. Most of our traditional allies, we're, we're, we're at a standstill on trade matters. Trump's got lots of time to do this with Kim Jong-un. Right. So the second or third summit, if it suits his, uh, or his non-test nuclear situation, right. it's pleased, if you will. Okay. I don't know if that's microphone's on or not. But anyway, anyone want to? Um, thank you for that question. If I understood your question correctly, you're asking whether just a long-term freeze is better than nothing, yeah. if that's the question. Okay. Okay, so the problem that I have with Kim Jong-un's recent announcement that uh, he will no longer test uh, nuclear devices and missiles, sure, it's a step in the right direction, it's the right thing to do, but... Uh, it doesn't solve the problem, and it's trying to talk the talk of an advanced nuclear power. He's basically saying, I'm a, an advanced nuclear power, therefore I don't need to conduct explosive testing anymore. So advanced nuclear powers, after a certain point, they don't have to conduct explosive <coughs> testing. They can refine their technology in what are what's called lab-scale subcritical nuclear testing. Uh, and so that's the problem I have. The other problem I have with a deep freeze, if, if, that's, if that's what we want to call it, uh, is that uh, that that just says that you can keep your nuclear weapons and you can still be a threat to South Korea, to Japan, and of course to the United States. Uh, and so that again doesn't solve the problem either. Uh, and that and if a long term, you know, if this is if this problem continues to be intractable indefinitely, uh, it would later lead to um, the potential for South Korea and even Japan to flirt with uh, their own nuclearization that would then, uh, um, that will then make Beijing react to that situation. It would leave a bad precedent to nuclear, to new nuclear aspirants. Uh, and it will just lead to a, a host, a laundry list of even bigger headaches uh, for the United States in the future. Uh, so I think, you know, yes, sure, we need to stop testing, uh, but uh, that, again, doesn't solve the problem, and that um, does not lead to any um, prog real progress uh, in the nuclear issue. Thank you. May I just add to that? I don't think Kim Jong-un needs to conduct another underground nuclear test. He has, well, the nation has conducted six, as we know, to date, and the most recent one on September 3rd last year was the most powerful, had a yield of reportedly over 150 kilotons. India and Pakistan have each conducted six underground nuclear tests, and the last time was 20 years ago in May 1998. Many of those tests were small in yield, some uh, even smaller than one kiloton. They were controlled 
tests, but no one scoffed. No one said that's not a nuclear test. And today, no one presumes that they would give it up by the fact, by virtue of not having tested in 20 years. What Kim Jong-un, I believe, needs to do and will do at a time of his own choosing, technology willing, will be to follow through on Lee Yong-ho, the foreign minister's threat made in New York last year of a nuclear test, the hydrogen bomb, ICBM-borne thermonuclear test in the Earth's atmosphere or in outer space. Of course, the U.S. and the former Soviet Union carried out these tremendous tests quite routinely between 1958 and 1962. It would be a serious provocation if North Korea did that. Would that lead to some kind of a military response? One cannot rule it out. But I think Kim Jong-un, at that moment of tension, can play, roll out his sequel. Hey, I didn't mean it. Let's talk. And by having done that, he would have established full credibility that North Korea can nuke any major U.S. city all across the United States. Then he would be very firmly positioned to extort the U.S. and South Korea and even Japan and get what he wants, to evict the U.S. troops from South Korea, perhaps even from Japan one day, do a peace treaty and be able to bully and maybe one day prevail over the richer South. I have a slightly different take. Um, I think North Korea is done with missile testing and nuke testing. I don't think there will be atmospheric tests during this administration. They will be giving a gift to the Trump administration and John Bolton in particular. Particularly, it, it doesn't gain North Korea. I think he, they might do that fully. I understand the rationale, but they're going to wait out this administration. The play right now is all the symmetry and diplomacy. They play normal guy. They play a reasonable character. This is a reasonable country. And their goal is to show and get international acceptance as a reasonable country with nuclear weapons, that you can trust us with nuclear weapons. We're going to be a responsible power. And I think that's going to be the play. Otherwise, we'll get back to the maximum pressure when they're just loosening it on sanctions front with China and Russia and everybody else. And then back to that bloody nose preventive strike, which which does not help North Korea. I actually give Kim Jong-un more credit. I wish, in a way, um, if he did that, it would make it easier for us to know what to do with policy, right? It's it's easier when North Korea acts bad. It's harder in terms of policy when North Korea acts in this manner. And the whole world's pressure is on against us, the United States, that we look like a bad guy. We look unreasonable. So I understand your, uh, Professor Lee's rationale. I just think that's going to be sometime down the road after the change in the administration. Excuse me, uh, Gerald Chandler. Why do you think that the uh, South Korean leaders have been better negotiators than all of the U.S. presidents, the recent ones, Clinton, Bush, uh, Obama, and their Secretary of States? In particular, I recently heard uh, Madison Albright on her book tour, and uh, she didn't admit to any faults, but you seem to think she had some. So why do you think that? And secondly, you've said that um, the South, the North Koreans have benefited greatly uh, by these recent negotiations. What concrete benefits have they gotten? Was that question directed at me? Yeah. I'm sorry. Did you say that South Korean negotiators are better, or oh, I corrected myself. Okay. The North Koreans North Korea, okay. were the better negotiators, according to you. And why are they better negotiators? And secondly, you said that the North Koreans have taken a great advantage and gained 
by what has happened recently. Um, I didn't say North Koreans were great negotiators. I just thought Kim Jong-un's how he conducted himself last few months was very smart. That instead of after doing all the missile and nuclear tests of 2017, the hydrogen bomb tests, the three ICBM tests, I thought he was going to keep going. So to my surprise, he actually stopped himself from keep going. I thought that atmospheric nuclear test might be a potential possibility, but he stopped himself. I thought he needed to show successful reentry capability, but he stopped himself. Then he engaged in this Olympic participation, diplomacy, and summitry, and now he has emerged, would you not agree, like a more, uh, with a better image to the rest of the world than the one that Pr- Professor Lee was describing during the Sony hacking or what Bruce was describing with this kind of, what was it, economist photo, like the baby with a bomb. I mean, he has emerged himself as a, a much more likable even person. Um, even myself, when I was watching the whole inter-Korea summit with that spontaneous move with hopping over the DMZ, back and forth with a smile, with a laughter, with drinking. So I mean, he, he does appear to be more normal. So I, what I'm saying is, not that he does some unbelievable negotiators. I think Kim Jong-un has positioned himself in a better space right now than where we were in the fall and winter of 2017. I believe Kim Jong-un has, to date, made no concession whatsoever. He has simply flashed smiles. He is now amenable to talking about denuclearization. But that is just the mere utterance of abstention from prohibited activities, activities prohibited under over 10 UN Security Council resolutions. So to say that I'm going to hold off on missile and nuclear tests and be wined and dined for that statement is a bit absurd. This image makeover has implications over the past several months that Kim has effected by making gestures meaningless gestures like decommissioning this exhausted underground nuclear site by releasing three U.S. detainees who never should have been detained in the first place and by coming out of his hermetic shell, Kim Jong-un has not only transformed himself from an international pariah to a legitimate global statesman, but he has basically reshaped the geopolitical stage on which he is now being courted by the leaders of the biggest powers in the world. And this trend, I think, will continue. I don't take the view that South Koreans are better negotiators than Americans. Nor he he, he corrected. Okay, sorry, okay. Um, I I would, whether it's North Korean negotiators are better or the U.S. negotiators are bad, I I might define it more as the, the, the agreements have been flawed, um, in that, again, if you compare it with the arms control treaties we had with the Soviets and the, and the Warsaw Pact, and I was the chief of CIA's arms control branch and I was part of the CFE treaty delegation, if you compare the, the very detailed documents we had with them with, with the, the very vague, short, um, not detailed agreements we had with North Korea, I think those were flawed uh, because they were were so short and, and you know, uh, lacking the detail that we needed. You know, if, if you've tried to buy a car from someone eight times and they've, they've cheated you every time, what you need to do if you go back into negotiations is make sure you define what a car is and, you know, it has four wheels and a carburetor, et cetera. You need to make very, very clear for, for all sides what their requirements are. You know, and in talking with some of the U.S. negotiators when some of the talks were underway, you know, when I would talk about, again, the, the arms control treaties, they say, well, 
you know, North Korea is different. We're not going to have a thousand-page document. We have to do it one page at a time. I was like, well, why are we treating North Korea separately, you know, differently from every other country we've negotiated with? And it's like, well, if we're going to do one page at a time, at least make sure each page is good. Um, and I'd ask about certain provisions, and they said, well, you know, the North Koreans will never let us have that, so we're not going to ask for it. It's like, well, that's not how you do negotiations. And then also when I asked about verification, you know, it would be like, you know, well, are we going to ask for this, some of the provisions that we normally have in arms control treaties, short notice challenge inspections and non-declared facilities? You know, the response was like, well, they won't let us have that. They're a very proud nation. So the Soviets would let us have it, but North Korea won't let us have those kind of verification measures. And, and what would you have us do, Bruce, kill all the scientists and, you know, destroy all the buildings down to the ground? I was like, no, I just want a, a, a handful of short notice challenge inspections every year. So I think the way we went into it was um, allowing vague text, uh, allowing short text, allowing uh, North Korea to create a separate category for itself so that we agreed to. So the nonproliferation treaty, all nations that are in it have a certain responsibility, except North Korea where we carved out special exemptions for them. You know, I would actually characterize your question as uh, North Koreans are savvy negotiators. And the reason for that and the simple answer to your question is look at the result today. They've come away decades uh, with better nuclear weapons, with more and more advanced. They see um, American democracy. They see changing American administrations, changing American policies, changing personnel and policymakers in America as America's strategic weakness and as North Korea's advantage. And that's one way they, they game the system of negotiating. They try negotiations, but they wait it out. And they say, okay, if you don't want to deal with us, if you don't want to give us what we want, we'll wait until the next administration. And in that time, they continue to advance their nuclear um, capabilities. So that's a short answer mm -hmm. to your question. Um, and, and just, you know, I mean, one other thing is whether it's the negotiations or the text, I mean, it's just the, the, the previous attempts have failed because North Korea kept cheating on the agreements. I mean, even as they were signing it, they were already in violation uh, with uranium programs, et cetera. So, you know, whether we blame the negotiators or just I think the, the underlying factor has been North Korea kept doing what they agreed never to do even as they were signing the, the documents. So I think that has been the common theme is that they, they violated it. Yes, ma'am. Stephanie Cook, Nuclear Intelligence Weekly. Um, you mentioned how North Korea is changing the geopolitics of the region. I wondered if you could look at South Korea, Japan, and China, and even Russia, and talk about what their expectations are of these talks. In other words, what they actually see coming out of them versus what they would like to see coming out of them. You're asking me? Okay. Oh. Um, I think there are different expectations. I think South Korea expectation is they were, they were, President Moon was so invested in this, in bringing everybody to this point that they want just the summit to occur. Um, I think the, obviously our Japanese counterparts, our Japanese, uh, are the most concerned about potentially what could come out of the meeting and potentially even a deal, um, that could, that's not, that does not serve Japan's interests. Uh, like, this is why Prime Minister Abe, uh, will come again. When is he coming? It's very soon, right? Um, 
meeting with President Trump yet again, trying to be one of the last person to see President Trump to again say a deal like a deal on intercontinental ballistic missile does not help Japan, that you cannot make such deal and that leaves medium-range short-range missiles, that leaves Japan and South Korea under threat. Um, they would like to have an abduction issue raised by uh, President Trump. We'll see if he does. But um, so that I think Japan is most concerned. I think South Korea, I, I, I think they just... I think they have a lesser expectation. I mean, they, they are, they're saying that in a way that they have, that I'm not sure if they need a specific success. I, I think it's just a joint statement that Duyan was talking about. I think South Korea would accept and try to still push it along. I mean, President Moon has a sort of a famous saying, sort of like he says that it's like a, dealing with North Korea, it's like a very delicate crystal ball that you have to move very delicately and patiently and so on um, because they're so invested. I think China and Russia, it, China is interesting because I do think that China would gain from some agreement like peace treaty. Right or any kind of reduction on U.S. troop presence, um, they will lead to U.S. reduction of U.S. troop presence in South Korea. They will be helpful to China. And in fact, when Kim Jong Un raised the joint exercises, I think it was really a China's ask that Kim Jong Un is doing. I don't know if Kim Jong Un was okay with joint exercises a couple months ago, and then he raised it recently. The North Koreans raised it recently. I think that was China's ask. But of course, China still does not want. I think it, it is complicated because they don't want overly like U.S. and North Korea, to really uh, get into a better space because I think China's interest is still trying to have most influence over North Korea and the Korean Peninsula. I think that's still their number one interest more than anything else. Yeah, I agree with what Sumi said. And just to add, um, for for President Moon Jae-in, he, he really needs a summit. He needs it for um, the very basic reason of he needs a, the Trump Kim summit and uh, the diplomatic process to um, stay alive uh, in the months and years to, going forward because he needs to um, achieve and drive his peace process. In order to do that, he needs progress on the nuclear issue because progress on the nuclear issue will then lead to lifting of sanctions. And in order to uh, completely achieve President Moon's peace agenda, he needs sanctions lifted uh, because he can he can begin to implement other elements of a peace regime like the cultural and the humanitarian exchanges. But he's going to... Um, hit a roadblock uh, with economic cooperation, inter-Korean economic cooperation, if there are still sanctions in place. Uh, for China, um, I agree with what Sumi has been saying. China, we were seeing Beijing trying to insert itself into this process, into uh, the summitry process, uh, because now, you know, you hear President Moon and President Trump talking about peace and, and Kim Jong-un talking about peace. And so peace is a regional order issue. Uh, and so that's where China has the biggest stakes. And so China will want to try to get a seat at the table for that. And that's why it's trying to reinsert itself into this process. Same thing with eventually with Russia as well later on. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I think somebody might have something to say. At the Heritage Foundation, I assume, fundraising is a high priority, as it is at Tufts University, my employer. We're, we're going to be passing around a hat later. When it comes to international fundraising, North Korea is simply brilliant. You have to look at the scorecard in America, of course, we're big on sports. But you look at the scorecard on nuclear diplomacy over the past quarter century, very conservatively, I calculate over $20 billion for North Korea. Between 1994 and 2010, South Korea, this is all on the record, public record, South Korea gave North Korea $11 billion. 
about 70% of that in cash. Between 1995 and 2008, according to the Congressional Research Service, the United States during the Clinton and Bush years gave North Korea in excess of $1.3 billion, so about $100 million a year. And you might be thinking that's not a huge sum. Well, in the 90s, North Korea underwent a famine. In, in the mid-90s, late-90s, all of North Korea's the total export earnings for North Korea was a few hundred million dollars, less than half a billion. So that was a lot of money from the United States as well. As of 2005, China has each year given North Korea, now this is a rough guess, but about 1.5 billion a year. So what about Team America and its allies? What have they gained? Approximately less than nothing, a nuclear ICBM armed North Korea. Just to add real quick uh, to your – it's like an excellent question. Another thing that we're seeing or some signs that we're seeing right now with the reports that Assad wants to go to Pyongyang and meet with Kim Jong-un, it's not – it appears that Kim Jong-un is not only trying to level out the geopolitical playing field in Northeast Asia, but he seems to be leveling it out to the entire world now, including the Middle East. So when I heard reports about Assad wanting to – and if this is true, uh, it poses two problems. One, uh, the diplomatic floodgates that are now open – to, to the north um, could lead the north to proliferate uh, easier, and it could um, build North Korea into becoming the WMD Walmart of the world. The second problem uh, is that, um, and this is the geopolitical question that you're asking, uh, you know, when, when the summit happened between Moon and um, Kim first, and we saw Beijing wanted to insert itself, uh, and we saw Russia also voice opinion. So that's, you know, that's leveling out the playing field, building leverage before Kim walks into a, a meeting with Trump. The other element we're seeing with Assad is maybe, you know, if, if the reports are true that he wants to meet Kim Jong-un, uh, is, is gaining more leverage, bringing in more like-minded countries to join Team North Korea before his meeting with Trump. Uh, and so that has implications going forward especially when Kim Jong-un is clearly trying to build up this image that Sumi was talking about as the leader of a normal country, the leader of um, a peace-loving country that has nuclear weapons, and and to um, eventually get to a point where it uh, is accepted like um, India and Pakistan. That is always said to American negotiators in the past, that it wants to be treated like India and Pakistan. Perhaps Iran too. I mean, we've the 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 missile cooperation between Iran and North Korea is, is famously well known, uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if that's that's the other element. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is excellent uh, conversation. Uh, uh, all of you is really great. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Heritage Foundation. Um, North Korea. It seems like. North Korea, are, they are the one who want this summit with Trump more than the other way around. Uh, it seems that way. Uh, now, what my question is, what do they want? Do they want a peace agreement somehow? Because they dangled the carrots already. They released the three hostages. They signed a treaty with South Korea. I mean, he can come in and say that. And then says, well, how about peace treatment? Well, in return, what is he willing to give up, you know, for Trump to, to sign the paper? Uh, the Trump already said what he wants, but the Kim hasn't said what he wants. 
So uh, my question is, what do you think of that? Why is North Korea so insistent on a peace treaty when North Korea is a country that has, without fail, violated every major international agreement it signed, but it's so big on another paper agreement? Now, China and the U.S. never signed a peace treaty. China and Japan never signed a peace treaty but normalized diplomatic relations. China and South Korea never signed a peace treaty. Japan and Russia never signed a peace treaty. A peace treaty is good so long as there is genuine intent on the part of both adversaries to pursue peace. What's North Korea's game? Well, it's transparent. Everyone knows it. A peace treaty would call into the question the very raison d'etre of U.S. troops in South Korea, and in the new peaceful environment, they will most likely be withdrawn. So that's a plus for North Korea in changing the balance of power in the Korean peninsula um, in its favor. But I think North Korea wants more. If you sign a peace treaty, if there is one among the U.S., China, North Korea, South Korea, the South Korean constitution will come under revision. In particular, Articles 3 and 4. Article 3 defines Korean ROK territory as the Korean peninsula and its adjacent islands, that is, the entire Korean peninsula. Article 4 stipulates that South Korea, the ROK, will pursue a policy of peaceful unification on the principle of freedom and democracy, a free democracy. That word is anathema to Pyongyang, the word free or freedom. So this will cause friction in South Korean society. South Koreans will be bickering among themselves, and this is all a plus for North Korea, because North Korea will insist that all it's concerned with is peace. North Korea thinks on multiple levels. They're not one-dimensional and certainly not crazy, as Wendy Sherman said. I think, um, oh, yeah. uh, just quickly on peace treaty, it's actually one of my biggest fears is that, because we know Kim Jong-un wants it for all the reasons that Professor Lee just articulated. Um, because President Trump, even before he be- came into the office, kind of questioned the, you know, why do we even need the troops there? Uh, it's too expensive. It's too burdensome. I'm concerned that, and I don't think North Korea is going to bring up troop presence at all because they're too smart again to bring it up. They already know it's a sensitive issue. Just concluding a peace treaty because they keep talking about regime security. We need regime security. And that's translation peace treaty. And then eventually, the rationale for the troop presence is undermined over the long term. North Koreans know that, so they don't need to bring up troop presence. They just need to bring up peace treaty. And in theory, it sounds good because it's like, okay, Korean War is still technically, you know, we haven't concluded the war because we don't have a peace treaty. So I'm concerned that this is one of the gifts that President Trump thinks that he could put it on the table. I'm, I'm very concerned about that, actually. Just to be absolutely clear, I mean, I think I can speak for everybody here that we all want peace, but the sequence is what's most important. There's a reason why in the six-party talks, if you look at um, the negotiations and even the text, uh, they they made it vague, uh, as Bruce really likes vagueness, but they, they said that Relevant parties will discuss peace regime at an appropriate time, appropriate forum. Uh, the unwritten understanding for that was um, relevant parties could be three or four party um, can be 
begin discussing this issue, peace regime that includes the critical element of a peace treaty, uh, after um, the third phase called the dismantlement phase, after there was enough blueprint drawn up on what dismantlement might look like, then uh, the relevant parties could start talking informally or formally about peace regime, peace treaty. Uh, and so that's where it's critically important. You want to be, you want to have formal negotiations, peace negotiations after enough dismantlement has already taken place. I think on the, you know, what does North Korea want, uh, a lot of what we're going against is what others are saying that North Korea wants. I mean, it's, well, according to the South Korean delegation that met with Kim Jong-un, this is what they, what North Korea said, um, or according to Chinese press after uh, Kim's visit to Dalian or Beijing, this is what North Korea said. It's like, we're not getting a lot straight from the horse's mouth. Um, but also when North Korea has announced things, it's not that it's code words, but it's just using phrases that people who have been following it for a long time know what they mean. So, um, you know, even in the South Korean delegation readout of their meeting with Kim, where he said he's willing to talk about denuclearization and, you know, in return for security assurances. And they didn't use the end of the U.S. hostile policy. They used a different phrase, but we know what they meant. It's like, well, security assurance, of which they've been provided many times, including in the September 2005 document, um, all to no avail. And the end of the U.S. hostile policy is the, the long list of security and diplomatic and economic demands and even sort of demanding uh, curtailment of South Korea's constitutionally protected freedoms of uh, assembly and, and expression. Um, but, uh, you know, when they talk about, you know, that, we know what they mean. Uh, and even, yes, I think yesterday's No Dong Shinmun sort of emphasized Arms or uh, uh, denuclearization is part of global arms control, and we, along with other members of the nuclear club, will go down to zero when everyone else goes down to zero. Well, we all knew that, but when Kim Gae Kwan last month had a a statement where he basically said what was North Korea's position for years, um, the White House was surprised uh, because they were like incredulous that wait a minute, Kim said he was willing to talk about denuclearization, which we think means this. Well, they have a different meaning. Um, so when we saw the White House talking points of the reasons why they were uh, calling off the summit, and it was a series of broken promises, not only the, well, they didn't show up and we sat in Singapore for three days, but um, also the, the broken promise of uh, going back on what they pledged to do with, with denuclearization. Well, they didn't go back because they had their own, um, you know, interpretation. So I think it's, you know, if you follow it for a while, you know what they're what they mean. But you know, I think sort of folks who don't follow it uh, have been surprised. And on the peace treaty, it's I think they're both kind of legal and societal impacts. The, the legal would be if you sign a peace treaty, it removes the basis for United Nations command. It doesn't have an impact on combined forces command or U.S. forces Korea or the level of U.S. troops on the peninsula. That's uh, a result of the U.S.-South Korea bilateral defense treaty. If you have a non-binding peace declaration um, like Moon Jae-in uh, and Kim Jong-un agreed to at the Panmunjom declaration, that has no legal ramifications for anything. But in a, sort of in society, both South Korea and I could see in the U.S., including in Congress, you would have a sense of, oh, well, the war is over officially. Uh, took longer than we thought, but bring the boys home. If the war is over, why are they there? And, you know, but if you don't address the, the North Korean conventional threat 
to South Korea, then you will have reduced the allied deterrent and defense capability without taking care of the threat, threat that they were there, that, you know, that they were there, therefore. Uh, just to add real quick, um, and this goes to the question up here on um, geopolitics and what does China want. Uh, in the late 90s, 97 to 99, uh, when the two Koreas, the U.S. and China, were negotiating a peace treaty, these are formal negotiations for a peace treaty. Uh, they eventually broke down uh, because, for, well, basically, for they're complex, but basically for two reasons. One, uh, the North did not want South Korea as part of the process. And two, North Korea kept demanding the withdrawal of U.S. troops. But, and this is the China question that you're asking, uh, what does China want out of this? Uh, in that process, China was also, um, my understanding of it, based from negotiators in that process, was China was demanding... Um, the withdrawal of the United Nations Command during that four-party talks process. Uh, and so, um, you know, when we're hearing, we're now hearing from um, President Moon Jae-in that the formal declaration to end the Korean War will be a three-party process, and they've defined it as the two Koreas in the U.S. Peace treaty afterwards, perhaps four, to include China. But that's a very interesting statement to make. Uh, and the speculation behind that is perhaps because of historical precedent that in the four-party talks before, China has tried to get in the way and spoil the process and also demand um, the withdrawal of the United Nations Command and other issues. Uh, so that's the speculation and the assumption that's being made now of why um, South Korea might want only three parties as part of the declaration to end the Korean War. Great uh, presentations from everyone. Um, just a quick comment on the Pueblo. Yeah. You know, that would be a symbolic, and, and a lot of people might like that. I'd rather see a substantive uh, action by the North, such as withdraw artillery from the Kaesong Heights. Oh, no, I'm just saying it was like, it'd be a, yeah. a gesture that exactly. would, be, would go over very well, but wouldn't have any impact. And, and on we shouldn't security. be taken in by that gesture. Right. Yeah. But my, my question for all, really all four of you, and, and just to put it really bluntly, and, and I think you've all talked to this, but, you know, have we seen, you know, we've seen savvy diplomatic action, we've seen a charm offensive, uh, you know, we've seen the regime get something for nothing uh, in the last few months, uh, you know, stature, legitimacy. Uh, but have we seen any evidence that the North is changing its fundamental strategy? You know, its strategy, of course, regime survival, we all know that. But unification of the peninsula under the North's control, you know, through subversion, coercion, and, if necessary, use of force. And, of course, the key to that is the splitting of the alliance and getting U.S. forces off the, Korea, the Korean peninsula. So have we – Do does anyone believe that that foundational strategy uh, has, has changed? And that the North's objectives to unify the peninsula uh, under its its uh, control has actually changed. And, and another parallel question, is there any sense that uh, Kim Jong-un really believes in a peace process and a unification process in accordance with President Moon's vision, you know, the confederal process and the like? Or would that just be part of its uh, subversion uh, efforts to uh, to end up dominating the peninsula? No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I would say even, I mean, on the, the unification, I, I mean, that also got into sort of the preventive attack discussion and justification for it. Um, you know, what I would see it is 
when people are talking about preventive attack, they would sort of get into why does North Korea have nukes. I might see three schools of thought. One was the, you know, the, the, the benign interpretation. They only have it because of a response to U.S. policy. It's the small, you know, nation that's, um, you know, assaulted by us or threatened by us. They, they did it even though they promised never to do it, um, because of us. Uh, you know, which calls into question why they signed four international agreements promising never to do it while they were doing it. But anyway, um, you know, I would say it's more than just this benign, you know, reason. You know, they do have military plans. <clears throat> Kim Jong-un, came when he came into office, uh, directed that the military come up with a new war plan to be able to unify the peninsula within seven days, and that requires going nuke or, or bio and chem early. Uh, so there are plans. It's not just the benign. Sort of the other extreme would be those who are saying, well, we've got to do a preventive attack as opposed to preemptive or, or retaliatory because they want to unify the peninsula. They're heading south um, or some other reasons. And, and I would say, yes, that's, they have the plan, but I'd say the third school where I would be is, but they're not coming as long as they understand the current correlation of forces which is why we have USFK, why we have a treaty, why we have THAAD, why we have all these other things. So it's not the benign interpretation, and it's uh, it's not that they're coming tomorrow and therefore we have to hit them uh, and initiate a war to prevent a war, uh, but, you know, it's they're not coming as long as the things stay the same. So I don't think we've seen a change in that strategy, but I don't see that they're, they're coming anytime soon. Um, but I think even sort of simpler than that is – you know, is there any evidence that North Korea is willing to abandon its nuclear weapons in the sense that we think of it, um, given all the statements by North Korea, given the history, given all that? When you have Kim Jong-un on January 1st and April 20th saying, we've made it, we're, we crossed the finish line, and now we will increase, you know, exponentially our production of nuclear weapons, that really calls in a question that they're willing to put them all on the table. So I, I would, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm pretty skeptical, you know, as we go into the summit. I think for North Korea, the ultimate goal to reach a communist nirvana state of unifying the entire Korean peninsula on its terms of liberating the South is a non-negotiable proposition. It must happen. If we take a patronizing view of North Korea, and let's face it, almost all of us do, almost all the time, we would presume that Pyongyang is simply content to muddle through. Yes, go berserk, lash out, say crazy things, kill cronies and relatives, and then say, I changed my mind, let's talk, and repeat that cycle in perpetuity. I don't think so. It's worked wonderfully for North Korea over the past decades because South Korea and the United States are understandably risk-averse. There's simply too much on the line to escalate it for that with North Korea. So even in the face of egregious lethal attacks, there has never been an instance of the U.S. or South Korea resorting to military retaliation. That is the simple truth. But how long can that go on? If you are the Kim regime, do you take satisfaction reassurance in that status quo when the income disparity between the two Koreas are increasing each year. South Korea is, conservatively speaking, 50 times richer than the North. 
this is a problem. It raises the very thorny question of why is the continued existence of the DPRK really necessary? When your own people are crossing the border into that other Korean state, you have a problem. So you need one day to be able to not only censor and bully the South, but obliterate it. And that's the ultimate game plan. And I think they're making progress. I think we have time for one or two more questions before we shift to our our second panel, which uh, will be focusing on Japan and sort of the impact that all these mind-boggling changes in the last several months of of, on the Korean Peninsula have had on Japan as well as Prime Minister Abe. So we're going to bring up our our second panel at about 3 o'clock, but uh, I think we have time for another one or two. There's a woman way in the back. Hannah Rudolph, MUFG Bank. Thank you so much for this session. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about U.S.-South Korea relations through this. Um, As you have mentioned, Moon is obviously very invested. He seems very confident in this process. To what extent has the White House kind of relied on this mediation and how much of that is a good thing? Um, And then if the process is eventually deemed a failure, as many skeptics think that it will be, um, what is the potential for U.S.-South Korea gap in that? That's a good one. Um, this is open, right? Yes, we, yeah, yes. Yeah. we have. Why don't you address it first? <laughs> I, I worry, but our our yeah. When we ponder on intentions, why did Kim Jong Un change his tune from molto agitato to placido on New Year's Day? There are four plausible explanations in descending order of irrelevance. What did I say? Ascending order of relevance. First, Kim Jong-un woke up on New Year's Day, had a change of heart, and decided going forward he's going to be a nice guy. Highly unlikely, right? Second, Kim Jong-un was so overcome with gratitude toward President Moon for his patience through that bluster barrage in 2017, he decided to reciprocate and send athletes and cheerleaders to the South for the Winter Games. Probably not true. Then third, this is the Trump administration's take. Kim Jong-un was compelled by the tough rhetoric and the threat of the use of force and tough sanctions enforcement to change course. I see no evidence to support that. It could be true. Probably partially it's true. But when you think of the statement by President Trump on August 8th, fire and fury, which the world has never seen before, three weeks later on the 29th of that same month, which is known in the North and South as National Humiliation Day, for it was on that date, August 29th in 1910, that the Korean Peninsula was colonized, and Kim Jong-un kindly explained that this was a message to Japan. He fired a missile over Japan on that day. Then came total destruction, rocket man on a suicide mission at the UN General Assembly in mid-September. Two months later, Kim Jong-un fired an ICBM the most powerful to date for his nation. It does not strike me as the behavior of a terrified man. So my take is all this has been preordained, preplanned, because North Korea has shown it goes through cycles of provocations and then peace ploys. And 2018, after that banner ballistic year in 17, after having established his credibility, was simply too good to pass up on with the Winter Games and so on. So... I would say 
the Trump administration should ask itself a very simple question of logic. At what point between February 9th and March 8th, between Mike Pence's invalidation of North Korea's outreach to the South at the opening ceremony of the Games on February 9th, and March 8th, when President Trump impulsively agreed to the summit proposition by Kim Jong-un, at what point during that month did North Korea's intentions go from fake to genuine? We're being played again. But what about the alliance relationship? That's the question. Oh, all right. I will just say in 15 seconds, <laughs> President Trump, I assume, sees using the troops card to be in the best interest of the United States for two reasons. That is against North Korea and South Korea. We know that previously, President Nixon used the troops card against South Korea, entirely actually you know, withdrew an entire division, 20,000 troops, in 1970 and 1971. And in 1974, before he was forced to seek a job elsewhere, he actually seriously considered, he had made up his mind to withdraw U.S. troops. And then Jimmy Carter talked about it, of course. And then in the Bush years, George W. Bush, more American troops were redeployed. So in, let's say, withdrawing 5,000 or 10,000 troops, President Trump will likely calculate he is sending a stern message to both Seoul and Pyongyang. So you keep cozying up to the north like that, you're on your own. Fend for yourself, as he himself said during the campaign. To North Korea, President Trump will think, this is sending a very strong message. We are removing our troops from the south, thereby we will no longer allow our troops to stand in harm's way within the range of your artillery. Thereby, we will be more prone to strike first. Now, it may work, but I think that is a false hypothesis. Probably it will work in North Korea's favor, not U.S. interest. Just to quickly answer your question, I'll answer the second part of your question about U.S.-Rock alliance if the summit fails. I, I worry um, about potential decoupling, not in the way that – not an extreme decoupling, but I do think President Moon has invested himself so much that if the summit fails, which I don't think it will, so we're just talking about that scenario, uh, I do worry because I think the inter-Korea momentum is already there, and President Moon will want to continue that. So that puts President Moon in a very difficult situation trying to balance U.S. and North Korea. But I worry about just us being on the same page, particularly if the summit fails. Yeah, I, I think the relationship right now is is complicated. I mean, it's been strained uh, because of President Trump's comments both during the campaign and, and after entering office on the chorus, the FTA. Uh, it's been strained given the comments about the alliance, um, you know, kind of free-riding, ungrateful allies, uh, you know, particularly a lot of criticism of Japan and South Korea. Um you know, sort of during the campaign, seemingly making alliances a business relationship. Uh, we should get reimbursed 100 percent or we walk, uh, which is not what alliances are based on. They're based on shared values and shared history, particularly the U.S.-Korean alliance, which was forged in blood. Um, those of us who have children in the military don't see uh, our children as there as a money-making operation or mercenaries. They are there for uh, principles and, and uh, shared values with our allies. Um, 
you know, and then when it comes to inter-Korean relations, there was concern about President Moon because he's progressive uh, and how far left would he go. But during the campaign, his campaign, as well as once he came in office, he really shifted more to the center. We saw him reverse his policy on THAAD, um, on Kaesong, admitting it would be a violation of U.N. resolutions if they were to reopen it. Uh, without prior approval. Uh, he even was saying that uh, now is the time for pressure, not engagement with the North, because his open hand of dialogue was rejected several times by Pyongyang. Uh, so there was no strain on the inner Korean aspect. Now that uh, Moon has sort of taken the bit between the teeth and moving very quickly in trying to improve relations with the North, perhaps due to concern about a U.S. preventive attack, you know, now he, he's sort of straying, you know, further from where we we have been. So I think right now President Trump is on board with this positive momentum. Um, but if things don't progress as well, either in the summit or subsequent um, negotiations, then there could be, I think, growing U.S. criticism or, or suspicion of Moon if he continues moving quicker down the path than the U.S. would be willing to. So I think Moon is, like his progressive predecessors, less willing to sort of demand high conditionality and high reciprocity from North Korea, uh, you know, more so than the U.S. So if, if the more we diverge on inter-Korean relations, then I think even the tensions that were coming out but largely papered over over this uh, special measures uh, agreement negotiations uh, and the chorus, then they may start coming out. And if, if the South Koreans see the U.S. as being the impediment or the reason for a failure of the summit, then I think we may see more South Korean domestic criticism of the U.S. as, you know, the U.S. is getting in the way of improved inter-Korean relations and maintaining peace. Um, with that, I think we're going to have to bring it to a close. So we will have, uh, we'll bring our, our second panel up. But uh, as we do that, if you could join me in thanking our first panel.
Yeah, you were right in the middle. Okay, we're uh, we're going to get started with our uh, our, our second panel. Uh, 
and, and as I was saying at the tail end of the first one, is, is sort of focusing on Japan, which I think has been the neglected ally and the, the overlooked partner uh, sort of in this whole swirl of focusing on inter-Korean relations and Kim's trips to uh, uh, to China and, and the Russian foreign minister coming in and maybe, um, you know, a Putin-Kim summit, obviously the upcoming uh, U.S.-North Korea summit. Uh, and it just seems like Prime Minister Abe um, is sort of like sitting home waiting for the phone to ring. Um, you know, and I think he, he went from feeling he had the – and really had the best relationship of any world leader with Trump. Um, he was, uh, the I think, the first leader to meet with him after the election and maybe the second after the inauguration and gave him the big golf club uh, – you know, whatever gold plated or something. And, and it seemed like he had the best relationship. And as if the two of them are walking shoulder to shoulder, side by side, you know, and then Abe's like, well, isn't this great, uh, Donald? Donald? Donald. You know, and Donald's now hightailing it, you know, for the, for the summit. Um, but anyway, in pulling together our, uh, uh, our second panel, as, as I've often thought is it, it's good to have smart friends because you can call on them to, to do panels. Uh, but also, even more than that, I can send emails to, to people and ask uh, for information. They give it to me, and then that way I can seem smart. Um, so the, uh, we have three really renowned uh, Japan experts. Uh, uh, immediately to my left, Joan Horning, uh, Jeffrey Horning is a political scientist uh, at RAND, and he specializes in Japanese security and foreign policies, East Asian security issues, maritime security, and then also U.S. foreign and defense uh, policies in the in the entire region, uh, and then prior to joining Rand, he was the uh, fellow for security and foreign affairs program at Sasakawa, USA, uh, and then before that at the Inoue Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies uh, in Honolulu. Sounds like a, a tough job. Uh, to his left, uh, James Schoff is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Asia Program, uh, Carnegie Endowment, um, focusing on U.S.-Japan relations and regional engagement. Uh, in Japanese politics and security issues. Uh, and then before that, he was a senior advisor for East Asia policy in the uh, U.S. Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, and on the, my far left, Yuki Tatsumi is co-director of the East Asia program and director of the Japan program at the Stimson Center. Uh, and before that, she was at CSIS. So uh, maybe we'll just go down the line. Jeffrey, do you want to go first? or, or? It's, it's however you want to do it. Okay. We're a, we're a finely tuned machine here. And the advantage of friends, you just sort of say, oh, look, you know this stuff. We'll just sort of throw it together and, and do it and give a little bit of guidance. And then we sort of flop around when we actually get to the, do the program. So, Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Bruce. And thank you, uh, Heritage Foundation. It's a pleasure to, to speak here today along with uh, two friends. Um, I'm going to focus just quickly on the U.S.-Japan alliance uh, from the perspective of Japan and how this whole thing is playing out. Um, and when, when you look at it from the perspective of Japan, you could broadly say that, from, that there are two promises, two big tent promises that the United States has made to Japan regarding this whole thing. Uh, the first one, and this is really broad, and it's not specific to North Korea, but uh, U.S. leaders have declared that the alliance is vital for regional security and regional cooperation. You look at all our joint statements, you look at uh, joint uh, 2 plus 2 statements, press conferences, there's always this repetition of a comment about how the alliance is important for regional security. 
Looking at 2015, you see the it talks about the indispensable role of the Alliance for Regional Peace, Security, Prosperity. Trump and Abe have talked about the alliance as the cornerstone for peace, regional peace and prosperity. And even back in April um, at the Mar-a-Lago uh, joint press conference, Trump said that he and Abe were working on the North Korean issue together. So there's this, this, this idea that Japan and the U.S. are engaged together working on this, uh, working on regional issues. And yet with North Korea being the most pressing security issue in the region, Japan is not actively engaged in this. So when Japan looks out, like what Bruce was saying, Donald, Donald, you, you have Japan being left to the side uh, in all the diplomatic activity that's being taken place. And so uh, understandably, the U.S. is taking the active lead in all this. But instead of demonstrating U.S. unity and solidarity among democratic allies to confront Pyongyang, really Japan has been cut out of, of a lot of this. But the second one, and this is more direct, the second promise, the broad tent promise, has to do with Japanese interests. In the previous panel, we briefly heard about this, but uh, the U.S. has made promises to Abe, Trump specifically to Abe, that it would advocate for Japanese interests, things like short and medium-range ballistic missiles, the abductee issue, as well as uh, denuclearization. And yet here, too, there's increasingly increasing anxiety that what the U.S. has promised is not going to be delivered upon. Um, and it stems from comments that we hear coming out of Washington. Uh, last month, Secretary of State Pompeo said in a news uh, interview that America's interest is preventing the risk that North Korea will launch a nuclear weapon into Los Angeles or Denver. That did not ring sit well in Tokyo, where there's been these concerns that the U.S. is more focused on trying to prevent a strike on the homeland as opposed to uh, in the region. Last week, um, I don't know if a lot of you have read the statements that President Trump made alongside um, Vice Chairman Kim, but there was a number of things that he said that really set off alarm bells in Tokyo because it really struck to the heart of sensitivities in Japan because it appeared to be walking away from these interests. Uh, and I'll just read a couple of these. Um, and this is a direct quote. We are very, this is President Trump. We are very far away, very far away. Those places are very close. That's their neighborhood. We're 6,000 miles away. I already told South Korea, you're going to have to get ready. And Japan also. I think they really want to see something great happen. Japan does. South Korea does. And I think China does. But that's their neighborhood, not ours. That again suggests that the United States is more concerned about the homeland as opposed to what's happening to, to missiles that could strike Japan and, and South Korea. Similarly, uh, President Trump and Abe have been in lockstep about maximum pressure. This has been, the, from the start, the two have been talking about the maximum pressure campaign. And then on Friday, uh, President Trump gave basically said he wants to retire the phrase. The same day that uh, Minister, Defense Minister Onodera is at the Shangri-La Dialogue using the phrase. And so here again, there's this little out of step with one another. And when President Trump also gave rave, vague references to a phased approach to deal with uh, nuclear weapons, it it's, stands in contrast to the immediate CVID approach that has been uh, being pushed by administrations. And then the big one for Japan is, of course, um, 
they've been pushing for abductees. And when President Trump was asked directly by a reporter last week, uh, did you raise human rights issues with North Korea or with Vice, uh, uh, Vice Chairman Kim? He said no. And so here, again, all of these things stand to raise concerns in Japan that their interests are not being uh, met. And so it's touching on these deep anxieties. And so what? Well, the turn of events where Japan um, is increasingly sidelined and increasingly there's this potential that its interests are not going to be met, it causes frictions in the alliance. Um, Japan has had a very consistent policy with North Korea. It's been the maximum pressure approach with North Korea, essentially. Um, but remaining in lockstep with the U.S. is causing s serious frictions here because Japan is the one that's being forced to change and to, and to alter its position, but it doesn't want to. Um, and it risks Japanese interests. And, and what we see happening now is just an episode, uh, sort of an additional example on this growing list of disappointments, despite the fact that we have supposedly best friends with Trump and Abe. We see things like uh, Trump's decisions on the TPP and the Paris climate, the decision not to exempt Japan from steel and aluminum tariffs, criticizing J Japan to do more with its defense. So now this just becomes another in the list uh, that the alliance really isn't working out so well. It's really not living up to its promises here. Now, I'm not trying to be over overly dramatic. It's, this is not going to cause the alliance to fall apart. We're not on the risk of, of the alliance going adrift. But it does seed frustration and disappointment in Japan. And with some people I've talked to, they're angry. There's an actual anger here about just Japan's interests possibly being thrown under the bus. And so I'm just uh, going to end with a couple of questions. Um, no answers, but then I'll turn it over to my two colleagues um, um, to, to go to continue the dialogue here. But with all of this happening, the, the questions that I'm wondering about is if Japan's interests are not met or if it feels that the U.S. is, is letting it down, how will this affect Japan's eagerness to help implement any agreement when it's called upon? How will, will Japan lift sanctions or will it keep its own sanctions? How will this affect ongoing talk right now in Japan about its uh, national defense program guidelines and midterm defense plan, where it's looking ahead in the next 10 and 5 years about what its posture should be, what equipment it should be buying for its own defense? And finally, the big question is, how will disunity in the alliance affect Chinese influence in the region? If China sees a chance that there's some disunity here, maybe it starts to reach out a little bit more and say, hey, your, your friends aren't, aren't, aren't working out so well for you. So there's, there's a lot. We can be a little friendlier. But with that, I'll stop, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Jim. Okay. Thank you very much, and thank you, Bruce, for, for including me here today. Uh, as a compliment to that, bilateral piece. I'm going to talk a little bit about the trilateral uh, regional uh, piece of the puzzle. And I know Bruce likes movie references uh, when we do uh, speaking engagements. So I thought of one, uh, which is The Hunt for the Red October <clears throat> and the, the, the story of the defecting Soviet uh, uh, admiral taking his powerful submarine and he's trying to get to the U.S. to give it to the United States. But of course, his own Navy is trying to sink him, and most of the U.S. Navy thinks he's coming to, to attack him. So you have President Moon strikes me as the Alec Baldwin, Jack Ryan character who is trying to convince everybody he wants to defect. And the Japan, Abe, is the skeptical general who says, you know, this guy's coming over here uh, simply to lob some nuclear weapons on, 
on top of us. We've got to stop it. And Trump is kind of like the national security advisor guy who says, you know, I'm a politician. When I'm not kissing babies, I'm taking lollipops out of their mouths. And he sees an opportunity, but he's also a little wary in the situation. Um, but what's what's striking to me in this little comparison is is the situation we face ourselves in right now, because Moon is making this argument essentially to Trump personally. And it's not only that we shouldn't destroy North Korea or we shouldn't actively pressure or try to hinder North Korea. We need to help him. The argument from the Moon government right now is that Kim is surrounded by people who are skeptical of his willingness to change a course for, for his country. And we need to be proactive and take steps to empower him or make him look better, give him ammunition in his internal uh, debates. So even though we're on the same team, uh, even though we have the same goals as, as allies, uh, we're going to argue a lot about what's the right thing to do because of our different perceptions of what Kim Jong-un really wants. What's the real motivation? Is he defecting or is, is, is he not? Um, so the, 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 the quid pro quo or the, the dance that we have to, to do is, and that Trump and Kim have to kind of figure out, um, or it's being discussed, I guess, in Panmunjom right now by, by Sun Kim and, and his colleagues, is what is the proper balance of kind of good faith measures? First of all, what's the basic framework of the agreement? Um, there will be a commitment to denuclearization and, a, and probably some kind of commitment, uh, if the meeting goes forward, um, to uh, uh, kind of a diplomatic normalization for and, and, and peace for, for denuclearization. But what are some of the upfront uh, symbols and trades that can be made that, that Give it some tangible uh, quality and and give it give it some momentum. The sanctions that are in place are really quite comprehensive. We've just finished doing at Carnegie a whole outline of all these, and we're going to put an infographic up soon where you can kind of see the whole outline of of UN sanctions. Virtually all of North Korea's exports are uh, prohibited. Uh, their ships are subject to inspection anywhere around the world. Um, severe limits on what they can import uh, in, in energy, et cetera, uh, financial transactions and, and the like. And the U.S. has been quite consistent that we're not going to lift sanctions until uh, there's denuclearization. And that's, of course, what Abe is, is trying to, to hold him fast to and why he's coming back again uh, so, so soon. Uh, the Japan side is very kind of proud of, of the fact that they, they feel they've kept Trump whenever he started to waver, kind of kept him uh, uh, to, to maintain a high standard for this negotiation. But they also worry that it's so uh, temporary, his, his focus, that they have to kind of keep coming back and setting him, you know, back back on track. But we've already seen the sanctions. Uh, they have actually in, in them a lot of discretion for individual countries to decide whether or not a particular shipment or activity violates it or not, and there's a lot of discretion for the sanctions committee to also determine uh, which activities are, are sanctionable or not. So you can not lift the sanctions but still drive a much bigger truck through uh, the enforcement of, of the sanctions. We've already seen a lot of exceptions and exemptions and looking the other way just to carry out the diplomacy uh, that we've had uh, till now. Um, and it's interesting, the story today, which I kind of totally believe, I think it makes sense, the idea that Kim Jong-chol talked with Trump a little bit about the possibility of a casino development in uh, North Korea. 
uh, because they have a couple of big tourism economic development zones that they've been working on. The biggest one is going to be completed next April, and they don't have tourists and they don't have people to fill these um, these resorts and these uh, facilities. So having – I think they really want to um, – they don't need to lift the sanctions, but they need exemptions that will allow money and people to flow into the various um, special economic zones that will bring them uh, cash but also isolate the uh, – and kind of quarantine the uh, the, the activity. Um, Trump has hinted that maybe Japan could be a contributor to as along with South Korea and China as being part of that uh, process. And I'm, I'm sure Yuki will talk about why uh, I'm, I'm highly uh, – it's, it's very politically difficult for, for Abe to kind of join that group. Um, but the other big piece, I think, is not only this economic component, but – and it was discussed earlier in the, in the panel before – the idea of ending the Korean War or a declaration of peace – uh, a peace regime, a peace treaty. These are all very different things, actually, and I think the treaty, is, as Professor Yoon talked about, is, is at the far end of the spectrum, and, and you don't necessarily need to get there before you um, really raise fundamental questions about the role of the United Nations in uh, on the peninsula and uh, the role of U.S. forces, et cetera. And that's, this might be something that Trump thinks is relatively easy uh, to give, as, as Sue Terry was talking about uh, as well. That declaring an end to the war on the on the early side of things, I think, for Japan is a is a great concern in terms of what does that mean for U.S. forces Korea? Does South Korea accelerate its opcon its uh, taking over of roles and missions related to wartime operational control on the peninsula? Does this become a justification for a reduced uh, U.S. presence in conjunction with the the host nation support uh, discussions as well? And what does that do for Japan's security. We've talked so much uh, within the alliance when I was involved in trilateral uh, discussions about how um, trying to, to reinforce the idea with our Korean friends, how Japan is absolutely vital to their security, and, of course, the opposite being true, that, that Korea is vital to Japan's security. And now Japan is really on the front lines uh, of this all because of the missile uh, capability. So it's even more interlinked what if you really begin to to tear apart or tease apart that that U.S. South Korean component of that? And that's a that's a, a bit of an earth shattering, uh, not an earth shattering, I guess, but it's it's a it's a it's a big piece at the bottom of the Jenga tower uh, if you're going to take take that out. And I think that is uh, one of the big uh, concerns that Japan has. I think many in the security community in South Korea have uh, similar concerns as well. South Korea's views are not monolithic. Uh, on, on this front. Um, just to uh, – uh, there's some other points we could talk about, but I want to turn it over. Um, overall, my, my overall kind of takeaway, having watched this for a little while recently in the Trump era, but having watched it for several years in a variety of, of, of ways, um, especially with Trump, I would forget about the words that he uses or where we're at at any particular moment. So, yes, it's upsetting that Pompeo said certain things in his confirmation hearing. It's upsetting that Trump talked about, I don't even want to use maximum pressure anymore. We're getting along well so nicely. That could easily change uh, on a dime. And to me, that's a distraction from the key issue, which is if we go back to that kind of hunt for the red October scenario, if you have a situation where you don't know whether this guy's going to defect, um, in which case it's a great prize that you've been looking for, or if he's going to attack you and it's a 
tremendous catastrophe if you don't uh, respond appropriately. Um, the, even though you argue about your perception of, of, of intent there, you need to agree on priorities within your group. What are, what are our key priorities? And, and I think you need to establish certain boundaries that, okay, if he does this or if he goes here or if he, if he, if he does something different uh, than we expect in this particular way, that we will take as a sign of uh, insincerity or, 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 or a lack of, of, of intent to follow through. Whether we're, act, whether we're right or not is, is almost beside the point um, because we're never going to completely know the inside uh, story in, in Pyongyang as it's unfolding. Uh, but we have to agree on, on what those boundaries are for our – so we'll, we'll cut some slack and, and, and allow this to play out to, to some extent trilaterally. But I think we have to agree on what the priorities are and, and what those boundaries are. I have not seen that kind of trilateral dialogue at the high levels, although we do know that Bolton is having frequent contact with his uh, counterparts in both uh, Seoul and Tokyo. I just haven't necessarily seen that come together in a, in a sense of confidence uh, trilaterally yet, and that's one thing that concerns me. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Bruce. And uh, I'd like to thank the Heritage Foundation for this opportunity. So my friend, two friends have talked about alliances. I'm going to focus, uh, focus like a laser on Japan's domestic factors. And what, uh, when Abe comes, Prime Minister Abe comes here on Thursday to have a chat with President Trump, um, what kind of a domestic situation he's coming out of and uh, what will be the key for um, Prime Minister Abe as he faces uh, President Trump on Thursday. So my, my focus on my uh, little remark will be uh, entirely on domestic factors. But bef but stepping back a little bit, uh, we keep hearing so much about, oh, Japan's sideline or, or Abe's sideline and what's, you know, what's in it for Abe and then Abe is getting criticized. It's a little bit unfair to put that all personify on Prime Minister Abe alone because uh, the constraints that Japan has when it comes to the uh, role that it can potentially play in the Korean Peninsula is really not unique to Abe. His prede predecessors carried it. Actually, I would argue that uh, by having a close relationship with President Trump, um, Prime Minister Abe actually made it a little bit, uh, changed the game a little bit in favor for Japan. But even that clearly has not been enough in the, uh, if you watch the uh, development for the last several months. Um, and then the reason why I say that is that Japan does have a structural handicap when it comes to its role or the uh, ability to play a role on the uh, issues on the Korean Peninsula by the simple fact that it is not a technically a, um, party, official party to the Korean War, or official party to if the if the discussion for the uh, peace regime starts on the peninsula, Japan doesn't have a seat in there. That is the handicap that Japan has when it comes to the uh, peninsula issue. And because of that, and particularly because Japan's uh, state of a relationship with uh, South Korea fluctuates at best, um, depending on who sits in the Blue House and who sits in Tokyo. The only realistic way for Japan to have any kind of say or any kind of role, direct or indirect, is to really work through the United States. And what Japan, that is exactly what the uh, Prime Minister has been working, working on and uh, all of his predecessors have in the past, I would argue. But, and yet, um, Japan is in kind of a 
kind of a tough situation here because it doesn't have a direct say in how this thing shapes up. And yet the impact that the development on the peninsula has on Japan, um, both Jim and Jeffrey talked about uh, it, potential impacts on its own alliance with the United States and then also its uh, defense, uh, its own uh, defense capability, defense capability and defense posture. Those are profound. So Japan is in a situation where it faces a peninsula or the security challenge that it may not have a direct role or shaping role to uh, of its ultimate fate. And yet, whatever the fallout coming out of the peninsula affects them so profoundly. So it's really not the great place to be. I don't envy Prime Minister Abe. I don't envy, um, I don't envy his predecessors. I don't envy my friends in the government who's working through all this. But um, what's often um, get missed, gets missed in the headline is that Japan does have an essential kind of an indirect, I got your back kind of role to play that uh, long way down the road, Jim and Jeffrey already t- uh, mentioned a little bit, and also in the previous panel, I think Doyon and Sumi also talked about it a little, for the uh, any kind of denuclearization um, agreement to be steadily, solidly implemented, and even argue going down further down the road and the reunification process goes in a s- somewhat stable manner, Japan's financial assistance or economic assistance or when it comes to denuclearization process, technical assistance can be really essential in making the process sustainable and stable. And even beyond that, um, I just recently saw a news headline that uh, U.S. Air Force uh, uh, F-22 will be on a rotation and the station in the Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa until the end of June. So what U.S. can subliminally uh, send message to North Korea and China by having an access to the base bases across Japan and the ability to get its own asset in and out of Japan to send a certain message, conduct certain military exercises. This is even peacetime. Those are not those are not irrelevant. It is actually quite important. So Japan does have a role to play, but as Jim alluded to, Japan is constrained. It's, this is not unique to Prime Minister Abe, although it can be, um, it can be, um, a little bit unique to Prime Minister Abe for certain issues. But both as a, so constraint number one, Jeffrey and Jim already raised it a little bit, uh, abductees issue. Prime Minister Abe has probably harder time to uh, have a kind of a leg room, a, wig, a wiggle room on this compared to his uh, predecessors because of his own personal interest and his own personal commitment that he pledged on this issue. And But I would also argue that only Nixon was able to go to China. Only Abe can change, um, Abe can change Japan's uh, current official position in North Korea if he so desires and if he sees that it serves in Japan's long-term interest in, in when it comes to a role that it can play in Korean Peninsula. Currently, um, as Jeffrey alluded to, uh, Japan's official position is abduction issue needs to be completely resolved before Japan can engage in any kind of normalization talk, any kind of uh, economic assistance, any kind of discussions with North Korea directly. Abduction issues a resolution first. And there is, um, there are so many reasons why um, this is the position that is incredibly hard to adjust politically. This is an emotional issue. This is a, hu- a humanitarian issue. 
I've been um, I, I've spent some time with abductee's family uh, about 10 years ago when their family came here for a visit um, and met with uh, senators and congressmen. If you spend any time with them, it's not impo- it's not possible to disentangle yourself and not to sympathize with the uh, desperation that they feel. And to them, Prime Minister Abe is their almost like a last hope. So it is incredibly hard for him to uh, move even an inch on this issue. But when when you step back and look at what Japan um, opportunity costs Japan is actually paying by not being able to adjust that position, is also quite substantial, because it is actually relinquishing the uh, only leverage that it has to offer. So that's constraint number one. And constraint number two, even though it is not a still a, a catastrophic rate, um, Prime Minister Abe's his own political standing within Japan is weakening. And if this were 10 years ago, um, probably other LDP senior diet members will be jockeying behind him to get him out of the office and get into his place. The only reason that's not happening is twofold. A, um, LDP really doesn't have a very strong heir apparent within the party. And B, Japan's opposition party practically has given up to play a credible opposition, governable opposition party role. And to me, this is surreal because I looked at Japanese domestic politics through my graduate studies. This is like Cold War politics in Japan where opposition party would just say no to whatever the LDP party, LDP says. And then actually worse than Cold War, I would argue, because during the Cold War, at least there is, you can couch it in an ideological um, opposition, you know, socialism versus democracy, anti-alliance, uh, pro-alliance. You don't even have that anymore. And only all you see is opposition try to pick an issue on, basically they're not having a policy contest. They are picking up on the way that, because they don't like the certain way that uh, his cabinet minister answered the questions, or you know some um, senior senior government official came into the hearing and their their attitudes were bad. I mean they were picking on those things, so they've completely given up on playing an essential uh, presenting an alternative. But um, Japanese economy has actually uh, slowed quite a bit in the first quarter, and um, April number is not really great. So now there is this concern that. If the economic indicators hasn't won't improve by the end of the second quarter, there are a lot of people that are out there that saying Japan is is Japan re-entering a re- recession, and that's the last thing Abe needs to stay in power and stay as a, a politically strong leader. So those are big uh, big two constraints that uh, Abe is uh, going up against as he lands tomorrow or Thursday morning. I'm not quite sure the official parties um. Schedule, but the biggest challenge for um, Prime Minister Abe when he sits across uh, President Trump on Thursday is that President Trump, as he now well knows, is very transactional president. So, for Prime Minister Abe, even given the uh, core, very cordial relationship on a personal level that he has with President Trump, when it comes to hardcore policy issues, basically you need to take care of our issue because we're buddies, doesn't really work. Prime Minister Abe needs to be able to 
present a package in front of President Trump in a way that a transactional president can appreciate. And so to put it bluntly, hey, please don't forget about abductees issue. Don't just get signed. Don't don't just walk away with, happy with ICBM deal. We need these. But as long as you you uh, keep these issues alive in your dialogue with North Korea, here's what my government is pre- prepared to do. And can he present that list? I think that would be the biggest uh, challenge uh, that uh, Prime Minister has on Thursday. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Great. Thank you uh, all. I wanted to uh, pick up a point uh, that several of you made on and even just this transactional thing is, uh, Jeffrey, when you mentioned that if Japan feels neglected, sort of how eager would they w- be willing to jump into, you know, funding an agreement? Um, and then also if the abductee issue is not fulfilled, then how much would they want to do? But also just picking up on the broader point is does Japan just see themselves now as a as a transactional partner, a cash cow, where, you know, I'm thinking of the – you know, the, the campaign where it was that we should be, you know, reimbursed 100 percent or we walk. And I think that led a lot of us to writing articles about alliances are good, um, like pointing out, you know, how much that both Japan and South Korea reimburse the U.S. for the, the cost of our uh, troops over there. Even I think Korea and Japan are paying $32 billion out of $39 billion uh, U.S. Pacific construction costs you know, for bases, I think, throughout the region. Um, and then even more recently, the when Jim was mentioning that it's their neighborhood, it's sort of, eh, you know, Japan and South Korea will pay for anything of, you know, implementing an agreement, rebuilding North Korea. Um, uh, and then even when we were talking about, well, if North Korea acts up and we have military operations, Japan and Korea will pay for the costs of U.S. military operations. Is this another thing that's just sort of undermining the relationship? Well, Japan, Abe came in wanting to shed that image of Japan just basically doing checkbook diplomacy and and providing financial resources to anything. He came in talking about playing proactive contributions to peace. It was supposed to be that Japan actually can do more than money. Um, I mean, there's other parts to that, but I mean, to really simplify it. And so um, the this whole... You know, there is the argument that if, if no matter what happens here, Japan has no other options but to support it. And yes, because it's in its interest, it will provide money. Japan doesn't want to just do that. Um, Jim, Jim was talking about, uh, you know, the bases. Uh, what I have not heard from Japan, maybe it's happening privately, um, but, and maybe it will be in, in, as Yuki said, maybe it'll be on Thursday, but what I have not heard is, what Japan can offer to this whole flurry of diplomacy beyond money. Japan has to make the case of why it's important here. Um, you know, it, it is as structurally disadvantaged, as, as Yuki said, but um, if it could offer uh, an argument up about technical assistance, about expertise with nuclear issues uh, in terms of manpower, in terms of all that it's done to the uh, IAEA over the years and all that that sort of expertise that it's built up, um, and, and then the bases, as well as everything that, that Japan has with ballistic missile defense and, and just the value, play on values about alliances and democracies playing together. If Japan could make an argument about why it's important, then it could really push away from this transnational uh, image. Um, it wants to, but 
un unfortunately, I think it's getting sucked into, it keeps getting sucked into that vortex. And when President Trump makes a comment about, well, if there's a war, you know, South Korea and Japan will pay for it. And, you know, you, you have a little knee-jerk reaction here and there of, no, we won't. But there's no sustained sort of narrative out there that Japan is more than just the checkbook. It seems like they're they're not in the room, but they're going to have to pay for whatever I think there's the other an nations. I think there's an assumption. To. Yeah, and that that's my concern is that Japan might say, "No, we're not." How about that? Well, that happened in the agreed framework with uh, when the United States uh, agreed to provide North Korea with a light water reactor and committed essentially Japan and South Korea to provide and pay for that. Um, the that was part of what Japan wanted to vow never to repeat. And so when you had the six-party process, that was part of what the justification for that was. And you at least had Japan as part of a, of a group that was, in theory, um, part of the agreement and then part of the implementation of the carrying out. We've gone back to this bilateral, trilateral um, series of, of discussions, which is um, problematic in its, in its own right. Uh, if there is, I mean, so much depends on what Kim actually offers up uh, in terms of substantive signals or, or uh, tokens or, or first steps of, of denuclearization. Um, but if there is something to work with there, that gives him a little bit more cover, I think political cover domestically, to at least be a little bit more forthcoming. Okay, we're actually getting uh, somewhere. I think you're going to need um, – so in the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which is you know now still in jeopardy, uh, but that the the oversight of that deal is a was a um, uh, they created a multilateral commission of the members that that put that together. There's a, a a commission of with representatives from the different countries with the IEA that meets that um, comes up with the plan of how things are going to be certified that uh, reviews the IEA's report on what how things have been checked that deliberates and decides whether they accept this or reject this or want to follow up here, et cetera, you're going to need some kind of multilateral oversight of any kind of denuclearization agreement, I would think, in North Korea. Um, and with Keto, for example, too, you have to build up institutional knowledge uh, over what's been agreed to, what's been done already, what's coming down the pipe. Uh, so I would see Japan potentially as pushing for, and I think the U.S. should be pushing for as well, a multilateral, even if the deal is done bilaterally or trilaterally, um, there should be a, a, a multilateral group that's, that, that has that role. Um, that's, that's an opportunity, I think. On the flip side, if things kind of fall apart, et cetera, and you've got the sanctions, um, we need to re-increase maximum pressure. Japan's already been playing a bigger role on providing surveillance and reconnaissance, photos of uh, uh, ships, ship, ship transfers and, and uh, sanctions evasion, so they could uh, certainly play a role in helping counterproliferation and and, uh, and and in that realm. And then one thing I think Abe could do that would give him a little bit more uh, flexibility, but unfortunately I don't necessarily think he's going to do this, I think he should he, he should walk back the, the, the package deal idea and uh, where it's nukes, it's missiles, it's long range, it's short range, it's WMD, it's abductions, it's everything. Um, because I don't think that's realistic. I don't think the U.S. actually would, if they could get a deal on just a real deal on nuclear weapons, um, who cares if North Korea has some uh, missiles that, that, I mean, 
biological or chemical weapon is, is, is a weapon of terror, but it's not a, an, an effective weapon of war in, uh, in, in delivered in, in that kind of way. Um, I think you could easily deter uh, North Korea in, in that scenario. The, the key thing is the nuclear weapons. So if you, if, you, if you step him back a little bit from that insistence of having to push, then I think you give him a little bit more flexibility uh, in, in the group. He's got more reason to be at the table if the discussion is not necessarily about everything. Right. Sort of on the, on the domestic side, but continuing this theme is, um, I mean, Abe was seen as having the best relationship. Um, and then the U.S. pulled out at <clears throat> TPP. Um, you know, now Japan doesn't isn't exempt from tariffs. Um, you know, early on there was the Aso Pence initiative, which was seen as kind of I, I thought a really kind of brilliant move on Japan's part of appealing to sort of Trump's desire for focus on jobs and and you know reducing uh, deficits, et cetera. I haven't heard anything really in that initiative lately. Um, you know, isn't it – and is it transactional? And it's like, well, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? You know, the Yasso Pence was a lot of promised jobs, promised, uh, you know, exports and imports. But you need to renew the envelope, uh, you know, passing an envelope every once in a while. Um, I mean, is this a sense of Abe – sucked up to Trump, you know, made a good relationship, and, and what did it get Japan, you know, not even the exemption on tariffs. So is that playing to this impact on either Abe domestically or just Japan vis-a-vis the relationship with, with the U.S.? And, you know, what alternative does it have? It can't really kind of go its own way, perhaps like other nations could. So I think uh, one of the uh – one of the moves that Abe, has, Abe and Japan, um, Japanese government as a whole has been making is to, um, when it, especially when it comes to economic and trade front, um, they're, they are really uh, making a renewed, uh, renewed uh, overreach, um, overarching uh, re- reach out to uh, China and South Korea on the uh, trilateral. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the uh, uh, Abe hosted the uh, trilateral uh, Japan uh, China South Korea trilateral uh, leaders meeting in Tokyo. Not too long ago, and they have the regional economic, um, more dynamic uh, regional economic activities was really one of the top agenda. And in a strange way, uh, Japan and China actually shares this concern about the uh, receiving this uh, brunt of uh, tariffs and uh, tariffs and this uh, harsh trade measures uh, from the United States. And obviously, China and Japan are very in very different places when it comes to its uh, other dimensions of the relationship with Washington. But I think that's one of the ways that the Japan is trying to soften the blow a little bit. Um, and uh, in a sense, Japan and China also kind of uh, need each other more than ever now, now that uh, we have this uh, rather unpredictable uh, American president that uh, while while Chinese Premier uh, Li Keqiang uh, was visiting Tokyo for the trilateral, he also did stay on for the bilateral meeting uh, to have a meeting with Abe. But then he spent a long time in Japan. He went to Hokkaido. He went to Toyota facility. He went to governor's meeting. And he really talked about, you know, this is the opening of the, you know, renewed relationship and friendship. Granted that they are trying to take advantage of the anniversaries, but um, I do see a desire on both parties to um, have a have a more um, not I wouldn't call it still friendly 
but then um, still like a mature and at least constructive relationship that I think they continue to disagree. They will always continue to disagree on certain sovereignty issues like Senkaku. But I think uh, they're at the place where they really feel like it's in both of their interests to uh, re-engage when, when their interests meet, which is economy. So that's one way that Abe is a try to, I think, uh, navigate through this. But then I think the challenge Abe has at home now is really um, Japan's own economy. That um, he, you know, his Abenomics really hasn't brought the t- kind of revitalization of the economy that uh, Abe promised when he wa- when he came back to power in 20, 2012. And a lot of people are. Having, um, you know, more people are asking questions about it. And, uh, Abe is still relatively politically safe because his opponents are way, way too weak to get him out of the office anytime soon. But then now, let's say six months ago, everybody thought Abe's re-election as an LDP president this coming September is a given. I think there are, uh, quite frankly, I think there are some poll results that are showing that, uh, maybe publics are, public is having a different mind about it now. So although it really hasn't um, still come together as a for, like, unified force against Abe staying in power beyond September this year, his domestic political standing is uh, solidly kind of eroding. And that also hamstrung him to make difficult decision on foreign policy. So it's a, it, it's a little bit of a murky dynamics that are, that are being played out within Japan that affects Abe's own ability to do things outside Japan, you know, in, including this executing of proactive contribution to peace or try to, uh, try to argue in front of President Trump that why Japan needs to be, you know, Japan is relevant mm-hmm. to this whole North Korea game. Quickly on that trade front, because I, I agree with you. Sometimes I go back and forth that Trump's trade policies and tariff policies is a way of potentially driving Japan and China a little bit closer together. But the flip side is Japan could easily choose to, as a strategy to keep Trump at bay, is try to shift the blame, keep the focus on China and say, you know, we, what we really need to do is, is, is gang up and deal with the, the, the real challenge. So they have a choice. Do they try to um, – form alliances with the EU and China and others to push back against the United States, or do they try to uh, push China under the bus in that regard? I don't know what exactly they're going to choose. All right. All right. Why don't we uh, open questions to the to the floor? Um, again, see if we have a, a microphone or, or not. We'll start here. I'm sorry. Here, here we go. I'm, I should have given you more more lead time here. Sorry about that. Thank you very much. I'm um, Asuka Matsumoto's visiting scholars of the Raishawa Center, Musais. Uh, so as for your questions, Mr. Klinger's questions on trade and economic issues, so, uh, in, my, in my understanding, the Japan started infrastructure and the energy investments for the U.S. already. So, like, uh, cooperating with uh, implement, uh, how to say, implementing uh, Shinkansen or Metro, the technology to the U.S. and also, how to say, sharing a kind of a clean coal and clean coal technology mm-hmm. for the U.S. So, 
not only trade issues, but also kind of investment issues. Japan, uh, I think, uh, trying to cooperate with the U.S. Thank you. Uh, as for, sorry, sorry. Also, the Japan is still welcoming the U.S. to PPP level, but. Right. Okay. Can I just add, kind of, because that sparked the, the, the comment there, um, uh, sparked an idea, this idea. There is a lot that Japan could do in a, in a North Korean economic development uh, scenario. Um, and if, if, I, if I give my view of whether the, the sub-captain is, is going to defect or not, um, unfortunately, I don't think he is. So the, the, the problem is Abe is just not going to be able to, I think for all the political reasons, whether it's the abduction issue um, and, and a variety of, of, of other domestic political issues, uh, I, I, I think I don't think he can be forward leaning if Trump and Moon and a few others decide, oh look, we got a we got a couple of missiles shipped over and we've got some inspectors in and we've got we're, we're moving toward denuclearization and it's and if, if it's a really weak deal, it's Japan's going to be in a really <clears throat> tough spot of uh, you know you have the South maybe beginning to go in and develop some tourism zones and they they start working on a casino and the expectation is. Yeah, we want Japan to put a clean coal uh, uh, facility over here to help fuel, provide all the electricity for it, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I just think Japan is going to be really reluctant, is going to be looking for allies in the U.S., whether it's in Congress or it's other government officials that are really skeptical, too, to help um, make the argument we shouldn't be going this fast on, on economic outreach with North Korea until we have more, more tangible Along those, I mean, if, if Japan doesn't want to just do checkbook diplomacy, but let's sort of be uncharacteristically optimistic, um, and if and if we're going down the path of agreements with the North and things are going well, uh, so that we're getting to the point where it's sort of building infrastructure. So that, I mean, that's a big area where Japan could play a role. Um, so it's not just writing a check, but it's Japanese companies and whoever's paying for it. Um, but how constrained would that be? You could talk about you can't have Japan wouldn't be doing that if you didn't have the abductee issue, um, you know. And then would the others be pressuring Japan to get on board? Oh, we'll deal with that at phase two or phase three. But also, um, not only the, the Japanese North Korean relationship on that issue and others, and if Japan is feeling like its security considerations aren't being taken into account, short range, medium range missiles. But what about the Japanese-South Korean relationship? Um, you know, if Japan feels, you know, Moon is going too quickly, calling sort of victory when it's not yet really tangible benefits from the North, I mean, what, what is the status now of the bilateral relationship between Seoul and Tokyo? And would that have an impact on how eager Japan is to get involved? It's tenuous. Uh, in the sense that I think it, my, my view is Seoul views Tokyo as a potential saboteur of, of this policy and approach and a person who is uh, a country that is trying to convince Trump to keep the bar uh, 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 astronomically high and unnecessarily high. And uh, I think Moon has done the right thing to try to reach out to, to keep Abe in the loop and to to not let that be an obvious 
thing. I mean, I think it's below below the surface because it's not in South Korea's interest to have Japan be isolated. Um, they they want to kind of get Japan on board. So I think the effort is being made to kind of keep it together, but there's it seems to me there's a lot of tension there. And I would add this, this is just a random anecdote, but it's still a, a relevant one. A friend of mine who was at Shangri-La last uh, last week, she said that um, after Onodera's speech where he talked about maximum pressure, Korean officials did tell him to stop using that phrase, that it was not the U.S. position anymore. And so this is just uh, what I heard from a friend who was there, but if that is indeed true, um, you know, this the longer that Japan continues on one path and the U.S. and South Korea continue on their own path, then I think you have there uh, a situation where this friction or tension between South Korea and Japan is only going to grow. And, and there were very different kind of comments from the South Korean defense minister, um, you know, where he sort of was like, hey, if, we, if we're too suspicious of North Korea, it just won't, you know, it, it, it just won't allow things to develop. And then, uh, yeah, he, he I, I'd have to pull up the quotes, but there were just yeah. a number of quotes that were just quite striking uh, to have a South <clears throat> Korean defense minister seemingly so soft on North Korea. And, and I think it certainly is at variance with the Japanese view. We'll go with Dave and then the woman behind you again. Yes, uh, Dave, it's your retired foreign service. I was just wondering, you know, looking at this whole thing with the Korea, we've, those who have followed this over the years, you know, there's a constant repetition. There's this sense that somehow, you know, the idea that Japan is being somehow sidelined is a, uh, is an assessment that's based on a lot of speculation as to what is actually going to be coming from the Korean side, before any of these agreements. It, it seems like we're, you know, we're getting all tangled up on uh, what we might or might not be getting out of North Korea and then what the next step will be and the next step after that and when is Japan going to get in. And Japanese tend to think more in terms of, you know, well, what is really in front of us? Uh, I mean, when Trump said it, 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 that the problems are in their their neighborhood. That's how the neighbor looks at is you know well, what's what's the neighbor actually doing, and you know it just seems to me we we're sort of characterizing the Japanese posture uh, a little bit uh, with too much emphasis on their inability to act rather than the need to give them something concrete, and this is something that we actually need in our policy is concrete results and ratchet back on all the rhetoric. And the problem now is that you have a president who is so emotionally and politically involved in a rhetorical argument for the last 18 months that it's all rhetoric and there's nobody looking at facts or nobody wants to have a discussion based on sort of fact-based, fact-driven policy options. Well, I'd say we're analysts, so we always overanalyze. Um, and then as an intelligence officer, you're right. Uh, you're right. Um, and, and as an intelligence officer, you know, it was like my job was to think of how things can go badly. Um, you know, it's sort of you see a beautiful sunny day. It's like, eh, I wonder when it's going to rain. Um, and there was even a, 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 a story of when Robert Gates was the director of CIA um, 
you know, he commented that when directorate of intelligence analysts smell flowers, we look around for the funeral because we just assume someone has died. You know, so we're always sort of thinking of how things can go wrong. But, um, you know, and, and I mean, that's really what intelligence officers or analysts do is you, you think of how things can go, you know, how the wheels can fall off. But I, I think especially in the current situation, I mean, we have North Korea – you know, on the one hand, you could say they're simply doing what Kim Jong-il did before, but they're doing it, you know, on steroids. So Kim Jong-il had a two-page playbook, threats, provocations, attacks, charm offenses. And so for six years, Kim Jong-un was doing the first page on steroids. He was doing a lot more rapid um, negotiate, or I'm sorry, launches and, and nuke tests. And now he shifted after six years to the charm offensive, but doing it much more rapidly and simultaneously than his father did. So either on the one hand, it's nothing is different, but he's just doing it better. Or on the other hand, it's totally different and, and you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, but because that is such a dynamic situation, you know, we have to try to figure out why he's doing it, what caused him to change if he did change, and then how it's going to play out. And then on the U.S. side, it's also much more dynamic or uncertain because um, I've never been more puzzled in the 24 years I've been doing Northeast Asia as to what U.S. policy is on North Korea. We have the broad parameters of it, but we have frequent contradictions by senior officials uh, who contradict each other and contradict themselves. Uh, the president has been on several sides of offense at once. So you can look at any number of quotes of his and in retrospect, everything will be perfectly predictable because he's made so many different contradictory statements. We just don't know which one to pick uh, as indicating what the, the policy of the day is. And even uh, I think as Jim and others were pointing out was the, the comments on Friday where he seemed to be abandoning, walking back, watering down, you know, that uh, kind of the Boltonian view of the purpose of this meeting is to get it over with if they don't. Uh, you know, we're going to back up Air Force One. If they're not willing to put the nukes on it, we're out of there and go back to preventive attack or, or increased pressure. Um, you know, we're walking away from the they must embrace CVID. They must embrace implementation quickly, um, the maximum pressure and kind of the other list of things. So um, it's like, wow, okay, we sort of thought we knew what the parameters were. Um, but now we're also being told to lower our expectations and that success is if we have a, you know, a meet and greet and, and establish a good relationship. So, um, you know, I think given the lack of facts or the lack of clarity uh, sort of from the North Korean government, the U.S. government, we have to do what we can to kind of, you know, connect the dots. So uh, if we tend to adopt a fairly pessimistic view I think work in North Korea, pessimism usually tends to be the more correct version. But anyway, so well, it's a very unique uh, U.S. policymaking process that's been going on in this particular case, and I think that might be changing. But I think that's part of what contributes to to, to what Dave was talking about, because it started. Um, it was heavily uh, uh, centered in the CIA side of things, with which Japan has relatively uh, weak uh, connections. It was uh, coordinated at an extremely high level when they were negotiating kind of the, when Kim was putting uh, – Moon was putting his summit together with Kim. Um, lots of people in the interagency were out of the loop in terms of what was going on there. And 
uh, Yachi might be getting his information from Bolton and in phone calls, but that only gives you one side of the, the whole story. And Pompeo was just beginning to ramp up now as Secretary of State and having personal meetings with, with Kim. So everything was really pretty, um, pretty uh, wacko, uh, as, well, not wacko, but unusual uh, as, as far as that goes, right. Um, but, but you see, if, if there is a successful summit or if there is a summit that has some kind of, okay, next step to it, you're already beginning to see the interagency process begin to, to come together. Now you've got some Kim and, and NSC and OSD and state there negotiating kind of some details. Um, Assistant Secretary Ford will probably be involved more deeply pretty soon on the whole nonproliferation side, compliance, verification, et cetera. So you can see maybe we'll get to a more normal place where Japan has uh, better intel and, and kind of a better sense of a role of, of being a real partner in all of this. But I, my sense is, you know, that's, that's been part of what has added to the sense of they're reacting, they're out of the loop, is because it's been tough to get into that loop. Well, and I mean, just to expand on that is in looking at North Korea, South Korea, and the U.S., you know, all three leaders are playing the cards very close to the vest. Um, in the U.S., when Trump uh, sort of came into a meeting a day earlier than he was scheduled to to meet with the South Korean delegation, uh, they're like, oh, hi, sir, we, we're meeting with you tomorrow, but okay, you're here. And then he said, yeah, okay, I'll accept the, the summit invitation and let's do it in April. Uh, his original thought was April, and then people said, well, how about end of May? Um, so he surprised the senior U.S. advisors in the Oval Office during that meeting. He surprised the South Koreans. Um, and so we've had a number of times where, you know, Trump will do something and, and the senior officials learn about it in a tweet or after the fact. Um, in South Korea, I was there about two weeks ago, and it was during when an, a lot of the North Korean statements were coming out. So some of us were having Blue House meetings canceled and uh, some of them canceled. Uh, and yet I still had uh, lunch with a senior, very senior official in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who was sort of like, sure, I got plenty of time for lunch, you know. Um, I'm, I'm just Ministry of Foreign Affairs. What do I know what South Korean policy is? Um, because I'll say it's about four or five people in the Blue House who know what President Moon is doing. Um, and then with North Korea, I had recent meetings with North Koreans, and they were saying that, you know, even the foreign minister and, and others sort of weren't sure what what Kim might be doing. Uh, and there was also indications that when the South Koreans met with the North Koreans or met with Kim Jong-un and Kim agreed that he wasn't going to criticize the U.S.-South Korean military exercise, that his advisors were surprised by that. So when you have three countries like that where even the senior advisors aren't sure what's going on, uh, let alone the rest of the bureaucracy, then when you think of Japan trying to tap into this, um, I mean, they're as in the dark as a lot of the parts of the South Korean and, and U.S. governments are. Well, so uh, Japan clearly um, is trying to take care of itself in Singapore. I guess uh, they're, they're going to send a couple of uh, – um, Relatively senior, uh, credible level senior, but not too senior, so that they don't look desperate. Um, <laughs> level of uh, um, love the uh, <laughs> love the uh, diplomats kind, you know, in Singapore try to pick things up. So clearly, they're doing it on their own. They must have decided that they're going to do it on their own if they really want it. And sort of have their noses pressed to the glass. 
<laughs> guys with the best job are the North Koreans who got sent to negotiate the logistics in Singapore because they get to stay in a Singapore hotel for two, three weeks. They've been there the whole time, and they're going to stay there all the way until the 12th. So it's, right, it's racking up the bill. Yeah, we had uh, – I'm sorry, the woman here, and then we'll come back down to you. Hannah Rudolph, MUFG Bank. Um, thank you so much for your comments. I was just really curious about Tatsumi-san's um, comments about the abduction policy shift potentially. Um, what would is that something that can be like offered through quiet negotiations with the U.S. or would we see public momentum building for that? And then is there a concern that if Japan did sort of show flexibility in that abduction policy that they would be even more susceptible to what Dr. Horning was was saying? that, like, they're just at the whim of the U.S. and being kind of pulled along? So I don't, for the moment, um, I don't really see any political momentum in support of adjusting that policy. Um, this is a this is a really tough issue to get any adjustment on it because, actually, Abe kind of created the baseline when, way back when, uh, when uh, Pyongyang Declaration was signed between his several predecessors ago, Prime Minister Koizumi and uh, Kim Jong-il about, you know, ap- and uh, and the following up to that, resolution of abduction will open a way to the discussion of economic assistance and normalization of the relationship between the two countries. So that that was kind of the basic formula that uh, actually Abe himself had the uh, important role in trying to shape. And uh, he reaffirmed that at the every chance that he has. So... Um, but because he crafted it, um, it's only plausible for him to change what he crafted. Can you imagine someone like Prime Minister Hatoyama try to make an adjustment to that one? I don't think so. But maybe he has a wiggle room to do that. But in order for him to make those kind of difficult adjustment of the issue that he actually personally is very interested in and emotionally invested in, he needs to have a pretty strong political standing back home, which is not as stable as it used to be, like even six compared to six months ago. So he's kind of in the bind. And um, but by the way, that situation would only aggravate it for Abe's successor. I would argue, if he couldn't adjust it, I don't think I can't think of anyone except for perhaps Koizumi Jr to be able to adjust it. And we're talking about two, easily two or, two or three decades for that adjustment moment to come. So so I think um, I think Prime Minister is, Abe is in a very difficult position at the moment. Okay, down here. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask uh, to, to what extent the Japanese, when you think back to, to when Moon praise Trump for his, you know, getting them to the point where they could all come together and talk. And then there was this talk of, I don't know whether Moon actually suggested it, but there were these suggestions that he'd get a Nobel. And one could just imagine that this vision is driving Trump more than anything. That to what extent, this is obviously seen in in Japan, that they think Moon has kind of created this I hate to say it like a Frankenstein in search of a Nobel, but, you know, maybe that's the wrong analogy, but I can't think of any other movie images, so. That, that is such a horrid picture. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Frankenstein yeah, in Stockholm. <laughs> um, I think um, 
Japanese probably, you know, Japanese does, didn't enjoy that moment at all, I think. Um, because, I mean, honestly, um, I think uh, Prime Minister Abe really thought that um, he, you know, he, him, his, um, his bromine with uh, Mr. Trump was genuine. And then here, he's having bromine with like just about everybody else, but him at the moment. But even that, I think, uh, I think uh, South Korean, especially, I'm not sure about President Moon himself, but the South Korean officials are quickly reminded that that cannot be entirely relied upon. When remember, President Moon was in town to have a direct talk with President Trump and talk about upcoming summit. He probably, I mean, as soon as his aircraft, you know, his airplane airplane departed the United States. President Trump said, we're not going to Singapore. So that was, so that was, that probably was a very stark reminder that this president is very unpredictable. And, uh, that is frankly what makes everybody nervous about Singapore is that it's only going to be him and Kim Jong-un. And I think everybody's very nervous who will go into that room with Mr. Trump. Is it going to be Kelly? Is it going to be Mattis? Is it going to be Bolton? And what kind of a talking point will he be handed to? And can he stay on that script? I think that's what scares his own people and also um, other stakeholders in the region, including Japan and South Korea. Um, I have heard um, in hearsay, um, in the anecdote that uh, other foreign leaders, not President Moon, but European leaders are asking Mr. Abe about, so in your meeting with Mr. Trump, what did he say about Paris Accord? Or what did he say about European defense commitment? And that that kind of thing. But I haven't heard that on the uh, President Moon's version. But it seems like everybody tries to play the, uh, how, do, how can we manipulate Trump game because I think uh, Abe himself has done it with regard to where the summit would take place. It was moving towards a Panmunjom kind of uh, site for a little while, and and uh, there are, are reports and stories that um, Abe personally lobbied against that uh, because uh, you don't want to be in the shadow of Moon. That's where Moon has his. You want to do your own. Um, you brought him to the table with all your pressure your maximum pressure, you're in the position of strength, he should come to you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so everybody p- plays to Trump's ego in, in their own way. So I think it's kind of fair game and um, uh, as far as that goes. Yeah, but I think, you know, on the, the unpredictability of, of the summit is um, we really, we, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you, you never know in a summit, you know, when you have two leaders, especially if it's countries that don't get along, uh, you know, human dynamics or surprises or someone backtracking on agreed upon text, you know. Uh, I mean, you never quite know how things will go, although normally you try to script it uh, so there are no surprises. Um, but, you know, given the fact that North Korea has not really articulated what it what it's looking for, and then really the unpredictability of Trump, and he embraces that. He, he, he wants to be unpredictable. So, you know, going into it, it really, to me, it's like the, the cardinals going into the Sistine Chapel to pick a pope. Um, 
you know, the two guys are going to go in, close the door, and the world waits with hope and trepidation whether white smoke or black smoke comes out of the chimney. I mean, we really just don't know. Um, but I think it will be a case of it will be a success because, you know, they'll claim it's a success. And then, you know, and, you know, and then experts will be sort of picking it apart like, well, this isn't new. This is not much. This is, you know, the same as some previous document. Um, and I think that'll get really drowned out by kind of the partisan reactions. But, um, you know, we, we really just don't know. So, you know, when I get a lot of interview requests and it's, you know, what do you, what do you foresee? It's sort of like, folks, we're down to a week. You know, just hold on for the ride. Um, you know, cause, and I've also, you know, commented how, you know, a lot of us have, have equated watching North Korea to a roller coaster, uh, cause it's, it's a wild ride. It's ups and downs. Um, you know, but it, to me, it's more like the, you know, the carnival ride, the, the scrambler where it's, you know, things going all at once. So you're, you're spinning this way and this way and everything. Because the last, well, really the last two years, but particularly the last six months, uh, there's just so much going on in just one week that you really, you know, you just can't keep up. I mean, just think of the one week we had, you know, the U.S.-South Korean summit. We had, um, you know, the cancellation of the summit. We had Trump denying the existence of an NSC official. Uh, we had, you know, the summit being pretty much back on. You had Kim, Kim Young-chol, we had, I don't know, a bunch tariffs. of other tariffs. I mean, a whole bunch of things in, in, in one, one week, uh, any one of which would be a big deal. Uh, and I also remember even the inter-Korean summit, when you're sort of trying to absorb that, then Kim Jong-un had, I think, three more big announcements that weekend of, you know, closing nuke sites, oh, you want to have inspectors and a couple others. It's just you, you can't really keep up with the events. And um, you know, one of the things I think is work, as working North Korea, sometimes when you're doing research or Googling things and you come across something you wrote nine years ago and you're like, you know, I could just reissue that with a new date. Um, you know, it's sort of. We've noticed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of depressing. It's even worse when you realize, oh my God, I just used that same analogy, you know, in an interview yesterday. Um, but now what I find is as I'm going across either something I wrote a couple weeks ago or, or, a draft of something that I never even finished because the next event occurred. Um, it's like, this is hopelessly outdated and it's only three weeks old. So, um, you know, you're really just trying to, to hold on for the ride. And, and I mean, at this point, it's especially because it's such a short time before the summit. Um, you know, we, we don't know. I mean, it's at this point, making predictions is just wait for the, wait for the game to start. We get the seatbelt for your office chair. Right. Yeah. And I think um, if uh, two leaders don't get into fist fight, I think that we will call it a success, right? Right. <laughs> we have a uh, last question, perhaps. Uh, hello, my name is Asaho, and I'm from, I used to work for U.S. Korea Institute, and something happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, my question is about uh, abductee issues. So when the Rescue Association and um, family members of abductees visited D.C. last month, they stretched that how Trump Kim Summit may be the last opportunity to solve the issue. So I was wondering how widely shared is that view like to see the Trump Kim Summit. If it's to be successful, then there will be no opportunity to bring up that uh, abductee issue anymore. Thank you. I'm sure family strong, feels really strongly 
about that. Um, and if you're with the family in any supporting role of that visit, you will probably come out with a similar impression. But um, Japan's, uh, from, J from Japan's point of view, Japan had the agreed upon process with the North Korean government, which North Korea side abandoned. So it is up for, to them to come back and pick up from where they left off, which was about two or three years. Uh, it's 2018 now. My gosh. So it was three or four years ago. Um, so I don't necessarily think that if uh, President Trump didn't raise it, it will be the end of the abduction issue. I mean, it would. I mean, Prime Minister Abe continues to hold that very close. It's a dear. It, it's a. It's a. It's a near and dear close to his heart. So he will. Um, he will look for any potential. Um, potential chance to resuscitate that process, but I think uh, that when there's so much going on around nuclear weapons. And uh, he also has to make sure that uh, Mr. Trump doesn't um, walk away being happy about um, denuclearization and the disarmament of the ICBM. Uh, short-term and short, short and medium-range ballistic missiles are actually, like um, panelists on the adult, um, on our prior panel, uh, all of the two are more important for Japan's own security. So there are a lot of issues that are at play here. So, of course, from family's perspective, if this issue is not raised at the summit, that's the end. I don't necessarily think that. I don't think Prime Minister Abe thinks that. I don't think Japanese government as a whole doesn't think that. I would add to that, too. <clears throat> at the end of the day, the, the abductee issue is a bilateral issue between Japan and North Korea. Um, the U.S., it's important for the U.S. to, to table it uh, from the Japanese perspective, it's it's important for the U.S. to table it to get the North Korea to even acknowledge that that they should talk about it. But um, at the end of the day, it is a bilateral issue, and um, so you know I, I I'm of the opinion that Yuki is that this is not the last attempt. But moving forward, if if Prime Minister Abe does ever get a meeting with Kim and they start moving in the direction of of uh, normalization talks, that would definitely be something as part of a package with Japan paying war reparations and possibly for some resolution of the abductee issue. I mean, there's there's a number of things that you could think about for, um, you know, negotiated agreement on that. But <clears throat> whether or not it gets it – gets it's not going to get resolved right now, like next week. That's – nobody should get their hopes up about that. Whether he raises it or not, that's the big million-dollar question. Well, re recently I was asked by a journalist, you know, who are making reference to all the, the twists and the turns and the policy reversals and the surprises, um, you know, and just the difficulty in making predictions. Uh, and he said, so given all these twists and turns and surprises, you know, what are you looking for in the run-up to the, to the summit in Singapore? And I replied, I'm looking for a full bottle of single malt scotch. Because that's the way we're going to get through this. So um, that's right now my priority list this late in the day. So anyway, uh, please join me in thanking our, our three experts. I think we had a, a really stupendous uh, session.